All right, good morning and good afternoon for those uh, on webcast. My name is Bill Choi, and I'm the head of investor relations at Zscaler. Uh, thank you for your interest in Zscaler, and really appreciate you taking the time to learn more about us at our first Analyst Day event uh, held in conjunction with our Zscaler Zenith Live Cloud Summit. Uh, here in Las Vegas, we uh, just went through our vision, um, our technology platform that we've created, and some of the new innovations that will be coming to the market shortly. For the benefit of those on webcast, we will be reviewing some of those, so bear with us for those who are here and listen to this, but hopefully we could go into it perhaps a little bit deeper in detail. Now, um, I am going to announce up front that three of the new products we talked about, CASB, ZB2B, and ZDX, will be in beta trials with select customers over the next several months. Uh, and these products will be made generally available for purchase starting in calendar Q2 of 2020. Importantly, we have not included contributions from these new products into our guidance for fiscal 2020, which ends in July 31st. Now, we provided all of this guidance on our earnings call last week. As you can imagine, I just made a forward-looking statement. Uh, this presentation contains some of those additional forward-looking statements. All forward-looking statements in this presentation are based on information available to us as of the date hereof, and we do not assume any obligation to update the forward-looking statements provided to reflect events that occur or circumstances that exist after the date on which they were made. Now, moving on to uh, discussing our agenda for the day, we'll provide our view uh, of the market landscape, uh, discuss our technology differentiation and innovation, followed by a customer presentation. And then we'll take a short break uh, and return to discuss our go-to-market and introduce you to our new CRO, Dolly Rake, who unfortunately injured his back and is unable to join us in person today. But we will dial him in. Uh, he will have a few comments, and then we'll also be available for Q&A. Now, uh, some instructions for Q&A today. We will take one or two questions at the end of each section, but if you could hold your questions largely to the end when we have a dedicated time for that, uh, around 2.30. And uh, because we are webcasting, I'd ask you to uh, wait until a mic is made out to you uh, before asking that question. And now, uh, I'd like to introduce our chairman and CEO, Jay Chowdhury, um, as well as uh, Chief Strategy Officer, Dr. Manoj Appy. I'm sure I want to get on the stage. I'll just talk here. Yes. Good morning. Morning. Well, after listening to the keynote, I'm not sure I need to say anymore. <laughs> uh, but I guess we got people <coughs> remotely listening to the webcast. So, what Manoj and I are going to do is give you a higher level view of market positioning, and essentially the opportunity we see out there. Okay. 
Some of it may be repetitive because you've probably seen some of the slides being covered, but audience that's remote, probably it's uh, new for them. So let me start off with a couple of slides to set the stage. Then Manoj will dig deeper into the technology, and I'll come back and wrap it up this first section. We talked about the fact that digital transformation is a business imperative. Everyone needs to do it to stay competitive or rather to survive. And this transformation is enabled by some key technologies, cloud being one of the big ones that allows you the elasticity to really being able to really build, run, manage applications easily. A lot of data being collected from various sources can be handled uh, by some of the machine learning type of technologies in the cloud. Mobility is extremely important for us to be able to work anywhere at any time. And internet is becoming the network that connects various customers, suppliers, and partners and the like. So connecting securely these various stakeholders with each other is an important part of access to applications and services. And that's really the business we are in. We always focused from day one on fast and secure access. We added more on the reliable side of it as we are launching products like Zscaler Digital Exchange, sorry, Experience, so you can reliably access information no matter where it lives. So think of us as the policy engine that can connect any entity to any entity based on a business policy. So with that, Manoj, why don't you yes. take us through deeper? Sure. So yeah. um, uh, we've seen this uh, uh, transformation happen over the last few years, right? Uh, I was Juniper Networks for 10 years before last 12 years of retailer. And in Juniper, we were building these big, massive uh, routers, firewalls, and PLS networks because all of our mm -hmm. users as an enterprise customer, all of your users were sitting in branches, factories, uh, offices, and they all needed to access applications and data to do their regular work. And the key was, how do I provide fast, secure access for employees to their applications? Mm -hmm. And the best way to do that was to create a lease line network that connected you straight to the data center. And so the entire network, entire corporate network was built to make sure that you had fast quality of service based, reliable, secure connectivity between any branch to the data center because data center was the hub of everything. Now, as we all know, that didn't survive uh, through the last 10 years. What has happened is everyone is using cloud. And as you start using cloud, but your corporate network is the same. Everyone is on the wrong path towards the cloud, first coming to the data center and then fanning out. And there is no, uh, the, it just visually represents to you what the problem is right there, right? You don't have to explain it. It's a huge choke point. You can call it four choke points if you're a bigger company, but it's still choke points. And so the whole notion for Zscaler was how do we provide that, uh, uh, all of the things that people were talking about, fast access, uh, visibility, 
access controls, uh, data loss prevention, sandboxing, DLP, all of these capabilities in this new world. And as we started thinking through what all, like I rattled off a few, it was much more than that, right? It is an employee is sitting in uh, uh, San Francisco and wants to go to salesforce.com. He types in login salesforce.com. Where is this DNS coming from? Am I just going to rely on Comcast to give me DNS or do I go to Atlanta to get DNS to my HQ? If HQ gives me DNS, then I'm going to have to uh, land on Akamai's front end in, in Atlanta. So when you build a platform like this, you have to go through that entire security stack or entire network access stack saying, yep, we got to provide DNS and we have to provide firewall and IPS and sandboxing and SSL termination and proxy. And uh, there's a lot of flack about proxy or not. Uh, none of your companies don't have a proxy. So, <laughs> uh, and, and it's a big difference, right? Uh, when you're doing that stack, firewall provides network address translation and separates the external IP space from the internal IP space. A proxy isolates the two networks. Firewall doesn't isolate, firewall passes through. So you need a firewall as an access control mechanism but you need proxy as the isolation mechanism for network. But as we started looking through it, that big stack needed to be figured out, not just on the outbound side, but also for connectivity to intranet applications where people had load balancers, inbound firewalls, and Patrick did a fantastic demonstration of uh, what an attack surface looks like. Every time you have a firewall, it's listening for incoming connections, which means you have an attack surface. Right now you are relying on other controls to stop people from getting to it, but the firewall basically is there to create a hole in your uh, perfect world. And so that forces you to build denial of service, load balancer, segmentation, all of that. And these are problems that we were looking to solve. And one of the biggest challenges that we had as a company was what do we call this, right? Because this is an undefined market space. It's not firewall as a service or proxy as a service or VPN as a service or DNS as a service. There's several companies that do all of that. What was needed in the market was one stack that provides everything and there was no definition of it. What has, uh, and, and so what we saw people doing was doing the obvious next step, right? Saying, okay, so if you are not in data center and if I am in cloud, Let's just take that stack and move it to cloud. And awesome, now I'm doing great, now I'm cloud-based, but guess what? It's still not going to solve the problem because, okay, you went to one cloud, but what if I need to go from Google to Microsoft or to Salesforce or to Workday? You're still going to a choke point to go el elsewhere. But Manoj, you made the situation worse. You extended your network over and that too. <laughs> I mean, your network is now all over out in public cloud. Exactly. It's actually the opposite, maybe the other side of VPN. Yeah. VPN stretches your network to thousands of places where your users are. Exactly. And your attack surface <coughs> internal becomes even larger because now you've incorporated a whole new asset into the attack surface that you had already created. So what is really cool and we are really excited about, uh, and I'm a geek to core, so I don't take analyst reports lightly. <laughs> I go dig deep. But two reports came from Gartner about defining two whole new markets. One is called Secure Access Service Edge, actually, S-A-S-E, not network, sorry. Uh, Secure Access Service Edge. 
that is the market that Gartner is now defining as that consolidation of everything, right? When you are going into a mobile-first, cloud-first world, what is the product that you need to buy? How will you deliver security to your employees, to your partners, to your customers? They are defined that that world is going to be done with this new market called SASE. Uh, it's cute, S-A-S-E. So, uh, Secure Access Service Edge, if, uh, I highly recommend everyone. I just posted a blog about it on LinkedIn, so if you guys want to click on it, we've got the Gartner subscription for or the uh, reprint rights for it, so you can download it. But it is a phenomenal treatise of 17 pages going really, really deep into what the architecture should be, what is the uh, way that a service provider should provide that service. So let's say a vendor wants to be a SASE vendor, what are the key criteria that they must meet for it to qualify as a SASE. And, and it is not looking at just saying, oh, MPLS replaced by a CVAN or uh, zero trust as the thing. It truly brings together all of it and says, when you have an enterprise to protect in this new world, this is the new architecture to use. And what is very interesting in that is that they make the point that compute power is at the edge. So you need to move all your compute power as close to the edge as possible. You can't be on every endpoint, but move it as far as possible, right? That was the premise of Zscaler to begin with, that we said we need to have 150 data centers where we can process, not 12 regions where I bring traffic back, right? Actually compute at the edge. Uh, the second thing is they are very strongly suggesting that you have to go to a very light branch. So the branch will be just a router and all your services uh, it's an SD-WAN router as the branch, and all your services that are security services will be a heavy cloud that is distributed at the edge. The third thing is don't ignore encrypted traffic. That is, the world is encrypted. If you need inline network security, you have to be able to terminate SSL, which, by the way, only a proxy can do. Uh, so, so you have to have all of that capability. Uh, the, the main takeaway recommendation from Gartner is you have to look at, every enterprise needs to look at reducing the complexity of the network to a SASE vendor, which is one vendor that provides secure web gateway, CASB, DNS, zero trust network access, which is VPA, uh, and remote browser isolation in a single platform. This came out on August 30th, right? So we, we see this as a true definition of the market mm -hmm. that we've been trying to go after. Right? It truly pulls everything together and provides you a view of where is the world going. Uh, so highly recommend taking a look at it. And so over time, what we have built is exactly that, right? That it's always on all users, every location, easy to use service that imbibes all of those capabilities. Not all of them are completely done, right? We just announced CASB uh, out of time, for instance. Half of it is here, half of it is coming now and uh, remote browser isolation we just announced today. So the platform wasn't all there, and there's a few other things that they are asking us to build into it that kind of is why we are here. And so we are strongly, uh, we, are, we are really thrilled about that development in the market, and we look at it as, as our guiding principle going forward. So if you look at Zscaler, what we have built basically is this massive platform that has the ability to provide compute at the edge for doing full inspection of traffic, provide inline 
uh, inspection, peer with everyone on the planet to be able to be the fastest path between any user and any application. And on that, we are building all the products that we are talking about. So with that, let me give it back to Jay to talk about the products and then uh, provide a view of uh, what we are building next with Amit and Patrick. Good. So, the offering. Some of you who listen to the keynotes probably already saw it, but essentially a couple of points to highlight here. The model of security and networking you've seen in the past 30 years is fundamentally being disrupted. There won't be the same market segments you see today or you've seen in the future because some of this is going away because things aren't being done the same way. Obviously, some of the inspection technologies and all are still needed, but very differently. For example, when Gartner talks about zero trust network access, he's talking about the fact that you don't, don't trust a person by putting them on the network and say, go wherever you need to go. So that's, if done right, <clears throat> the way we're done with Z-Skiller private access, you saw Patrick talk about kind of anti-DDoS, anti-firewall, anti-VPN. <clears throat> so what we're saying is that we aren't building VPN. We're building something that eliminates the need for VPN. With ZPA, when you access those services, uh, since we don't allow any outside-in connection, so we eliminate the need to have a firewall sitting in front of your applications in the cloud or Azure or AWS, wherever the case may be. <clears throat> if we aren't allow any outside-in connection, how are you going to DDoS someone? That's why we call it anti-DDoS, <clears throat> because we are eliminating the need by, being, by offering this ZPA type of services. So that's what you think about. So that's why the mapping of one-to-one -one of older technologies to new technologies don't really make sense. <clears throat> That's why when people like to say uh, network security has this, I like to challenge them and say, what network security? Your LAN obviously needs to be protected here, but the network we often talk about is the wide area network. That is the open Internet. So that's why we look at ourselves sit sitting in the middle as an intelligent switchboard or intelligent policy engine. So in our world, there are users or things and the applications. <clears throat> you need to get to certain applications or services. <clears throat> and we are sitting as a platform in the middle. There's no such thing as inside the network, outside the network, off net and on net in our world. <clears throat> you come, you talk to us, we look at the policy, authentication, and connect or don't connect based on various rules. So you are, so I, just to summarize, we have two, you, you can take all applications and put them in two buckets. External applications that you do not have to manage. You simply use them. <clears throat> this is internet and this is SaaS. And internal that you build, manage, or run within your own enterprise. This could be SAP running in your data center or in Azure or AWS. This may be a bunch of home, homegrown applications that every company has. 
<coughs> and we start the business providing access to Internet and SaaS because that's where a lot of threats come from. Internet is the wild west. Even some of the <coughs> uh, storage services like Dropbox and Box become a wonderful tool to spread files that are infected around. So that's where we started out with Zscaler Internet access with simple goal. Block the bad and protect the good from leaking out. <clears throat> and we do this not only for workforce, and the workforce means your employees and potentially your IT contractors and other consultants who are really working and accessing those applications from your premise. And things. Now, things, we're kind of calling it broadly. It's either IoT type of stuff. It could be devices. It could be servers and the like who need to communicate to uh, either SaaS applications or Internet. So we end up being the check post to enforcing the policy. Uh, most of our customers are in this area. That's the service we started day one with. <clears throat> Using, then moving on, our customers started to say, hey, you're only doing part of it. You allow my employees to go to Internet and SaaS, but you don't allow me to go to my internal application sitting in my data center or public cloud. Now, the technology is very different to be able to do that stuff. That's where a tool like Firewall ends up being in or out. What is it? When you need to access applications sitting in, in SAP in a public cloud, the need is very different. You, when I showed you the diagram, you're starting with essentially global load balancers and the like. So when we built Zscaler Private Access, yes, it's using a number of common set of services, but we had to build something very specific from anti-DDoS to anti-firewall to anti-VPN and load balancing and the like that firewall guys will never talk about. So this is one of the fastest growing service for us. And Remo and Bill have talked about the growth and the numbers, the part of the press release and the like. So this solved the second part. And then as digital transformation is becoming more and more important, companies are creating a role called chief digital officer, whose focus is not internal IT. CIO is typically focused on internal IT, applications to be used by my employees. Right? And CDO's primary role is focusing on digital transformation, where you're collecting data, telemetry, all those things that the business needs to be more competitive. And that's where more and more B2 applications are being built so far before digital transformation. Every company has some level of B2B application portals, but they never got full focus and attention. Some companies where it's extremely critical to engage, they have pretty good presence. Uh, customers like uh, San Mina, the Zscaler customer, right? For them, a lot of these manufacturing vendors who engage with them, and because they're part of the supply chain, they had to build B2B very early on. In fact, that's when those are the kind of customers who told us, huh, why don't you help me here? Because I am trying to build those applications, but I'm trying to really put them in my data center. Tomorrow I need to build them in the cloud. How do you provide connectivity? So based on that, we added one more circle at the bottom, our customers. 
your B2B customers being able to access applications, B2B applications that may be sitting in your data center or sitting in a public cloud. And there's certain technologies that are needed to make that thing happen. The browser-based access was one thing. Supporting multiple identities was another thing. Doing supporting browser isolation for not just security, but for data exfiltration type of stuff or some of the key functionality that we need to support. That's the one we just announced today. Okay. Very excited about it. And then, last, but very important, Z-Scalar Digital Experience. This is uh, becoming a big issue for everyone. User experience. Where is my problem? What went wrong somewhere? Between your laptop sitting here and whatever service you're going on, whether you're going to access your email or you go to Salesforce or Workday or even a BBC News site, there are 10, 12, 15 hops you're going through. Where is the problem? That's a new area, new problem to be solved. I'm sure there will be lots of companies will try to enter the space, right? Anything gets hot. It's natural to have more entrance unless the barriers to entry are so high. We happen to be sitting in the optimal place to provide that service. We are sitting in the traffic path. We know what's happening on this end. We know what's happening on that end. So Zscaler Digital Access can provide you pretty good, a very good user experience, troubleshooting, monitoring is obviously the first stop. Where is the problem? Being able to diagnose, then fix, and obviously, as you can expect, more and more learning can take us to auto-fixing uh, and, and the like. So very excited about this scope and size of offering. I don't think anyone comes close to this type of thinking. People do things based on the background they come from. Okay? They see things from those lenses. People who are coming from a given appliance background, they look at things differently, and that's good for us because we are taking a totally different perspective than traditional security vendors. Uh, a lot of you have asked about customer benefits. You heard some of our customers today talk about some of the benefits. Uh, a number of them have actually quantified it. In fact, these numbers actually come from uh, this book on cloud transformation that Richard Steenan wrote. Richard is a former Gartner security analyst. Uh, that book is available. It's, it's a very good book. If you really want to understand how CIOs, CISOs, CTOs are going through this journey, the book is essentially a collection of interviews uh, without any uh, special interpretation of it. So you can firsthand read and see what these guys are thinking uh, without having to go through all the numbers, but the ROI is a no-brainer. Okay. We covered some of these waves uh, during our IPO roadshow last year. Right? In fact, early on, when we started the company, the only driver at that time was internet and web traffic as number one, and limited number of SaaS applications like Salesforce were there, NetSuite were there. Uh, 
the more traffic that needs to go out to the internet and SaaS, the bigger the need for a solution like ours because this means more traffic. And also, the more business happens on the internet, the more it attracts bad guys. You see all kind of stories out there. I don't need to make a case that there are security issues out there. The challenge is, how do you handle them? Uh, Office 365 became the biggest driver, even though it's one more SaaS application. It's probably 10x uh, the traffic of all other SaaS applications combined. You saw Salesforce traffic sitting at 1%. Office 360 was sitting at about 25%. Okay. And they're hardly big applications. In fact, part of the challenge is a lot of other internet traffic is pretty big. Okay. Uh, because it's rich media traffic, you have to process, you have to handle it, you have to take it back. You can't just tell your employees, you can't go to this site or that site. So all that traffic is acting as a stage. Uh, people often ask me, 365, are you end of it? Uh, where are you in that journey? In fact, there's a lot of opportunity. Office 365 is widely sold, uh, not as widely fully deployed. It's because it requires network and security transformation. And that's where we come in to help in that area. Um, SD-WAN, actually, the, the, one of the best catalysts that happened to us, the biggest one outside Office 365 is SD-WAN. You know, you know sometimes I wonder, every appliance vendor, starting from BlueCode six years ago, will say, we got a cloud offering, we got a cloud offering. And but they won't really go and talk in the market because most of these appliance vendors want to talk cloud to the press and investors. And when they go to customers, they will rather sell boxes. So they keep the cloud in the back, don't do much else, sell boxes. And when the customer says, ah, do you have a cloud offering? And they say, of course I do. If they start really making noise about cloud, then the market actually will move a lot faster and bigger. I think we'll benefit from that. We're the, otherwise, we're the only one really talking to customers about it. Now, in the SD-WAN area, it's good to see a number of competitors. The SD-WAN awareness has gone out there significantly the past 18 months, and we are natural partners for SD-WAN providers. As you saw, Gartner's will talk about it. SD-WAN is wonderful because it's a cloud-managed, call it branch 2.0 box that integrates routing, switching, path selection, all those good things and they can easily forward traffic to Zscaler. And then application access to Azure and AWS. It's a matter of time when most of the applications move to the public cloud. And today, almost everyone who goes there, the traffic goes back to the data center choke point and then goes out to public cloud because they can't afford to put security out there. There's no such thing as throw your virtual machine firewall out there. I believe it's a matter of time when the cloud won't really have any firewalls. You're going to see some sales of virtual firewalls out there for the next two, three years because people don't know any other way of doing it because the only way they know is put a firewall in front of it. But in general, cloud is not really suitable for putting firewalls. Where do you put those firewalls? And that's where I think this Zscaler, sorry, Zero Trust Network Access Technology will take off. We're seeing a number of small startups coming to space, which is a good thing because it creates competition, and competition helps everyone, especially if you stay ahead of technology 
which we, we know we can do very well. Uh, this partner ecosystem is important. I kind of talked often. This, this slide hasn't changed uh, since we started the company. Okay. It has expanded a little bit from external traffic to internal traffic and the like, but sitting in line and forcing policy is the important thing. I've been asked a few times, well, huh, I, uh, are you kind of the single point of failure? I said, well, do you want five points of failure? Right? And lots of finger pointing. Okay. Sitting in line is very hard to really figuring out security, not slowing you down and all this stuff. So we, this is our core competency, opening up. You know why, why the market moved from proxy firewalls to pass-through firewalls? In 90s, proxies were too slow. They are, it's hard work. Internet traffic took off. The market said, held with security. Good enough security is good enough firewalls. I'll move on. But the market had to evolve today. Every aspect of business uses proxies. Archimize the world and cloud filters the world when they need to really control traffic and, and connect to the right parties. It's all proxy architecture. The pass-through doesn't work. So you see these five or six areas, right? Identity is important in the clouds. So we integrate all identity providers and vendors. Endpoint partnership. We today announced a partnership with CrowdStrike. Okay, natural partner for us on the security side of it, on the uh, endpoint management, Microsoft and AirWatch, VMware have been good partners. Our goal is really, if you're not competing, we'd rather work with most of them, but some of them that the customer is asking for and they want to work with us, obviously we end up doing tighter integration and tighter go-to-market programs with them. Uh, on the branch side of it, Again, SD-WAN technology, great partnership opportunities for us. Security operations, being able to feed logs in real time to all these vendors from Splunk or some of the new offerings that are coming out from Microsoft, Google, and other players. And, and Caspi, Autoband Caspi, again, I think our, our, solution, our approach is not to really force one kind of solution. Like many of the Microsoft uh, uh, Office customers have Microsoft Caspi. We integrate with them. But the customer also said, hey, many of them don't have it. They would rather use an integrated offering from us. So we already had inline, and now we added out-of-band uh, CASB. So pretty complete portfolio overall. Um, so now, as we went for our old show last year, we shared with you uh, the TAM, or ZIA, ZPA, based on data coming from IDC, Gartners of the World. And, you know, some of these new markets, I think it'll be, it's kind of um, figuring out the TAMs is, is fairly hard. But think of it, the number of people who need to access B2B applications is actually far bigger, many, many times bigger than number of employees in a given company. Because all these companies need to work with each other. So the numbers will be pretty significant. And these colored Digital experience. I mean, everyone needs something like that because user experience becomes the most important thing. We have lots of debates internally. How should we come with the size of the numbers? So we obviously talk, go to experts. But some of these areas, there are no experts out there. 
uh, I mean, I was reading somewhere it said, you know, when autos were invented, cars were invented, they tried to figure out the market demand for cars. And the only source they could go to were horse buggies. Thinking of how many horse buggies versus how many cars are needed, you just can't translate over. So we won't really venture to put any dollar up there right now. Okay, but we'll let you figure out and imagine what it could be. Needless to say, we think there's a big opportunity for us in that area. So with that, Bill. Uh, state your name and the firm you're with. We have two mics, one on the other side, one here. Um, and the first one I'll give to Alex Henderson here. Thank you, uh, Alex Henderson Needham. Really two simple questions. Um, can you scale Z to B, uh, Z B to B uh, relative to, say, ZPA? And you know, how, how do you think about pricing it, you know, on a, say, a per user basis, but also what the penetration might look like relative to it? And similarly, ditto for uh, ZDX. Right. So, so first part, scaling Zscaler B2B or digital experience. I mean, scaling is our core competency. When you build something for the right scale. So we have no concerns about scaling the platform from that side of it. Yeah, that's not what I was okay. asking. I was asking what do you think the scale of the opportunity is versus ZPX size? Okay. I think it went to the question I tried to answer to say the opportunity we think is pretty big. At this stage, I'm not sure I can put any numbers around it. I think we'll be limited by the fact that how, how, how effectively we actually monetize and sell it. Okay. And the technology is very good. It's highly differentiated. The pricing question, so Zscaler uh, B2B, it's probably, you don't really have a typical user count base because one company uses may go 10 times a day, other company twice a month. So it'll be volume-based, traffic volume-based pricing, okay? And we'll be learning from early customers. <clears throat> As we announced, we are working with small subset of customers to learn and understand those things, and then we go from there. Did I answer both the questions? Or did I leave it? No. The first I couldn't. The second one I answered. <laughs> Hi, Jay. Uh-huh. Jay, over on this side of the room. Keith yeah. Bachman from BMO. Good to see you. Um, you. I actually had uh, two questions. The first is, where do you draw the line? And what I mean by that is you announced two new products, um, Z, B2B, and then ZDX. And, and what, if we take ZDX, um, it sounds like the value proposition is what other people do in APM or application performance management, right? And, and so that's not to say there is an opportunity, but including if I look at what Datadog's doing and Dynatrace is doing and a little bit of New Relic, they're offering some of those same features. And then secondarily within where do you draw the line of Z, B to B, while, while you're, you're partnering with some of the access management folks like Ping and Okta and those, it still sounds like the value proposition is similar in many ways and that you're trying to get so, limited access. So that's, that's so, the first question. It's a good question. If you think about Zscaler digital experience, it's actually sitting in the traffic path, knowing exactly what's going on. So end to end. But experience can be three pieces. One, what's happening on your laptop? It may have issues. It may be slow. It may have some memory, whatever. 
to the network part of it. Network starting from your PC, your local area network, Wi-Fi, whatever, all the way to the door of the application. That's the network. Number three is application. Is application slow or fast? So we can see the entire end-to-end. But we are not competing with any of the application monitoring tools, such as Neuralix or the world, because they are actually inside the application figuring out if application is slow, why it's slow. We actually, since we know everything, we can tell you that SAP is slow, but we don't know why. We would rather partner with those application vendors through APIs so customers can figure out the holistic picture. We take you to the door of the application as a part of ZI and ZPA. So we are in a natural place to troubleshoot exactly what's wrong along the entire network chain and the PC. So I, I see this totally complementary opportunity. And we can do it better than anybody else out there because we're sitting in the path. If you're not sitting in the path, if you were to do something like ours, they'll be doing something called synthetic transactions. Let me try to run a fake transaction, try to simulate going to Salesforce and see what it looks like. We are actually dealing with real transactions. So that's one. That's the ZDX part. The second question was B2B, right? So think about it. People get confused sometimes. They say, Jay, you talk about policy engines sitting in the middle. I go to identity guys who say, I'm the policy engine. <clears throat> so, the simple explanation is the following. <clears throat> when I leave the country, at the airport, they scan my passport. And the call gets made by the computer to a database of passport. <clears throat> is Jay allowed to travel? Is there any issues with this country and wherever? So, is Jay allowed to leave the country? Or where the, maybe he can go to certain countries. That's a lookup of database. That's what identity does. But think of this way. Identity is not sitting in the traffic path. If you don't have TSA to inspect in line, you can't do any of that stuff. You must sit in line to say you can go, you can't go. That's how we complement identity providers in that space. So obviously, if someone were to do that, they'll have to get in the middle of the traffic. And figuring out who can get what you can get is very hard. So people sometimes try to get selectively in the middle of the path. All these CASB-only vendors you talk about, they're all, all out of band. <clears throat> or they can say, I'll give you CASB by getting the path of Salesforce and Salesforce only, or Office 66 only. But they, to get in the traffic path of the entire company, it's a big undertaking. And that's why you aren't seeing very many entrants in that space. Yeah, okay. okay. Okay, thank you. Uh, so we're going to move to our next section. Uh, I'll be introducing our CTO, Dr. Amit Sinha, and our CIO, Patrick Foxhoven. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Bill. Good afternoon. It is afternoon universally across the working world, so it is good afternoon. Um, all right. Um, how many of you um, attended the Zenith Live keynotes? All right. Good. So, okay. Good. Um, so, I'm going to spend some time um, talking about uh, how we think about the platform. But more importantly, uh, I'm going to spend the bulk of my time 
talking about why virtual security appliances running in third-party infrastructure does not equal to a cloud service. Uh, Jay already covered uh, our overall platform strategy, right? We, uh, uh, what we've built is across 150 data centers. These are compute destinations. Uh, we are a carrier-neutral service, which means we peer equally with Microsoft, with Akamai, with various service providers. When we say a Zscaler data center, that is a compute node. That isn't a front door, and you'll see what that means in a minute. And we've used that common platform infrastructure, everything from the control plane to the inline data processing plane to the storage and analytics plane, universally across all these platforms that we've built. So when we launched ZB2B or ZDX, we were leveraging a lot of the core platform components that were already in place. So let's talk a little bit about ZIA and the evolution and innovations that have happened on that platform. That's our flagship product offering. Um, if you see from an access control perspective, everything from next-gen firewall to URL filtering to DNS resolution to bandwidth control and traffic shaping have been in the product. Uh, on the data protection side, we had DLP, uh, we had inline CASB, and last year we launched exact data match, the ability to go to a bank and say you have uh, a billion records that you want to make sure never leaks, we can ingest that uh, in a tokenized format and uh, provide data loss prevention on your exact data. Similarly, on the threat prevention side, everything from DNS controls to inline SSL, we'll talk uh, quite a bit about SSL, uh, to sandboxing have been there for a while. And then uh, we, we also introduced uh, IPS, cloud IPS protection as part of the platform. Um, and today you heard us talk about out-of-band CASB, right? Uh, this is, uh, we've done the hard part, which is sitting in line doing SSL inspection, uh, looking at content, giving you all the cloud application controls, the shadow IT reports. But now with out-of-band, we have the ability to go to your sanction apps and via APIs deliver the same consistent data loss prevention and malware protection uh, without without that traffic actually going through the Zscaler service. Patrick's going to talk a bit about browser isolation, but again, the clean way to look at it is ZIA, ZPA, today we allow you to access certain destinations. We can block it, we can caution, but with browser isolation, you have more control. I can say, uh, if a user wants to access a suspicious site, I'll allow it, but it will be rendered in an isolated browser in the cloud, therefore the uh, the, the probability of the infection uh, cycle is completely eliminated. There's nothing on the user's uh, endpoint. End Similarly, on the ZPA side, and Patrick's going to talk about that, maybe there is very sensitive information that, that you want uh, users to access, and you don't want that information locally on the endpoint. Uh, browser isolation can render it as an image, so uh, you get additional security. We talked quite a bit about uh, Zscaler digital experience. I think there were some good questions. And I think as we have talked to all our uh, customer advisory board members, the resonant theme that comes out is my workforce is out everywhere. They are connecting using the Internet and networks that I don't control. My applications are managed by third parties. I'm powerless. So give us more visibility and control uh, to, so that I can give proper uh, user experience guarantees, and more importantly, even go back to my uh, service providers uh, if they are violating 
uh, service level, level agreement. So I would, if I'm using Microsoft Office 365 and I'm having SharePoint problems or Skype problems, I'd like to quantify that and then uh, you know, make sure that I'm getting the proper service levels from all of these cloud providers. I think the biggest differentiator for Zscaler in the, in the ZDX space is the fact that, one, we are already present uh, on the endpoints of all big, uh, uh, of all the users of a given organization, right? We're not sampling. Many of the tools that someone mentioned, these are sampling-based tools. These are geeky network tools. Uh, in the morning, I use the example of a professional SLR camera versus a phone that you carry, right? Every one of you has a phone. Every one of you can take a picture, right? And phones are getting better and better. So what you want, similarly, in the world of digital experience is not to sample, right? If you have a geeky network tool, what ends up happening is you might deploy that tool in a branch office or in a, head, or in a headquarter facility. That user now goes home and it has a completely different network, completely different user experience, and you just weren't there, right? So we want to transform digital experience just like phones have transformed photography. Everyone has one, right? So the advantage that we had was we've all, we are already present. Zscaler app is already present on the endpoint. We are sitting in the middle. We have an unprecedented vantage point. We can see what's happening on the left side of the network. We can see what's happening on the right side of the network. We can pull your device and see what the health is, everything from CPU, memory, Wi-Fi, and we have access to front door of the applications. More importantly, the cloud effect comes in, right? We routinely see issues where a, a certain cloud service provider is having issues in a region, right? Maybe, you know, as I showed in the morning, maybe Box is not working, you know, in, in, in Singapore. Why, right? There's some peering problems going on there. And we can, uh, we can provide that insights to customers, letting them know that it's not just you, this whole area is having a problem. And, you know, this is uh, kind of the problem statement that we shared uh, uh, at the keynote. Today, the networks are so disparate, you don't control all aspects of it. A user can be in many different locations on many different devices. Uh, you know, you could have problems with your Wi-Fi. You could have problems with, uh, with uh, your WAN. You could have problems with third-party peers. Uh, sometimes you could have a problem with Zscaler, right? Uh, you could have problems with the, the actual service that the user is trying to access. And that problem only gets compounded as you introduce mobility into the mix. When you're talking of a true 5G scenario, you have 100,000 employees all on their 5G networks. How do you know what is going on? Where will you run your packet <laughs> capture tools? Where will you run your trace route tools, right? You need to be in line to be able to say, this user is having a performance problem right now because of this reason, right? And that is the, the advantage we have. The platform that we have built is already logging 70 billion transactions. When you can deal with that scale, adding some performance metrics is very easy, right? And we are already there, so we are, uh, we are leveraging our position of strength. Most of the other network tools you'll see out there uh, are what I would call a spectrum analyzer. You know, I came from the Wi-Fi world. Back in the day when, Wi-Fi, when there was a Wi-Fi problem, you rolled in these big geeky tools to, to see if there was RF interference. Now, if you have Wi-Fi deployed in a thousand locations, what are you going to do? Carry the spectrum analyzer everywhere? No. You have to start building intelligence into your infrastructure itself to be able to pinpoint those types of problems. All right. So with that, I'd like to hand over to Patrick to uh, give you a quick highlights of some of the new stuff that has happened in ZPA and B2B. Thanks, Hannah. 
So we launched uh, ZPA a couple years ago, and there was a lot that went into building the, the foundation of what ZPA does. This first line here, zero trust network access, is I think the term that's finally sticking. There's been some other terminology that has been applied to this kinds of concepts in the past. Software-defined perimeters was the most recent previous term. Google has been talking about this beyond corp term for five plus years now. I think ZTNA, this Gartner term, is going to finally stick. And what it what it is, and, and Jay illustrated this well in his in his uh, opening talk, is it's not another VPN. It's we don't even like calling it a VPN replacement. It's anti-VPN. It's an alternative to rethinking how users should access applications in the future, especially accentuated by the fact that these apps often are moving out to the AWSs and Azures of the world. It's rethinking firewalls. If you have a inside-out connectivity model where ZPA is basically doing this inside-out traffic brokering, there's nothing that's allowed inbound on either side. So why do you need a firewall anymore? Manoj talked about that in terms of what firewalls are really good at. And if there's nothing inbound being permitted, it's the, the, the attack surface like you would have seen in the keynote is dark. It's invisible. There's nothing there. And so that's why ZPA can be very often thought of as anti-firewall. It also, in the same way, obsoletes the need for worrying about things like denial of service. Because again, if there's nothing inbound coming into the network, what, there's, there's nothing to DDoS. And so we see those kinds of stacks of technology go away. Also, in the same light, network segmentation. If you're very granular in ZPA policies, we designed ZPA such that you could be, I, the way I like to describe it is surgical-like in your policies. You're permitting named users to named applications. If you do that right, you don't need to think about segmenting the network. Everyone has gone through the last 10 or 15 years of trying to think about doing mass segmentation, micro-segmentation of networks, and almost no one has ever done it end-to-end -end because it's too, it's too burdensome, it's too challenging. ZPA is something you can actually overlay. It doesn't care what network it's running on, and you basically are creating secure overlay networks on top of what's already there, and we've seen that be very accepted in our customer base, where it's actually a project that gets deployed and achieves what network segmentation is trying to achieve. Naturally, to support those kinds of services to do it well, we had to have this concept of if we're brokering connections inside out dynamically for every user to every application, we have to figure out the optimal place to do that brokering. So that's our global cloud footprint. We have 150 sites around the world. Our customers have their apps deployed in you know, way more number of uh, sites or regions than that. And so we have to choose the optimal place for the two sides to meet. And so part of the ZPA foundation was to be able to do load balancing and, and intelligent path selection, which also brings in health monitoring. And, oh, by the way, every customer early on in ZPA that thought they had an understanding of how many internal apps they actually had in their network, they were all off by 10x or more. So we realized we had to build in app discovery capability to make that easy for them to migrate to a world where uh, it's a zero trust network access style. And then highlighted down below under access, these are two of our most recent additions to ZPA. So the first one was browser access. When ZPA first launched, you had to have an app on your endpoint, which is good but not ideal in scenarios, especially like when you start talking about Zscaler B2B, because a third party, you may not be able to dictate to a third party install this app. They, they may not even want to do that for a variety of reasons. And so we, uh, we launched this last year browser access in ZPA, so that allows a user to get to an application using the zero trust uh, style approach that ZPA brings 
just with a web browser. You don't have to have an endpoint. And then last but not least, and we'll have a slide on this, um, the most recent addition to ZPA is this concept of doing, Minoj introduced the concepts of uh, SASE, what Gartner's calling Secure Access Service Edge. Well, that's a public form of SASE is what we do at the core, but we also are extending SASE down to a private model, and that's what we're calling Private Service Edge. And that concept is, if you look at how ZPA works today, I'll build out this slide, you've got headquarters, data centers, you've got an enterprise network down and below, and when, a, when someone needs to talk through ZPA and do this zero trust approach, those are the inside out broker connections coming from both sides. By design, if a, let's say a user in HQ is talking to something in the data center, you have to do this inside out brokering and that has to go over the internet to Zscaler. That's good in some ways because that's what's giving you this new style of application access, but it's bad in terms of, if, let's say that user is talking to the data center locally, do you want all those connections to go out to the internet or not? You probably don't in on-premise, you know, local scenarios. And so what we're doing on uh, ZPA is extending the our cloud in the form of a VM and allowing that traffic brokering to happen on premise. Now it's still the cloud doing the control plane and the logging and it's still a, it's still a SaaS offering, but the actual traffic flows can be, happen on premise without these traffic having to go, in essence, hairpin out to the internet and back. We've seen that be as the next, once we introduced browser access, the next most demanded feature was, let me do traffic brokering locally. And so we're calling that uh, our ZPA private service edge and you'll see aligning with that name, that terminology, our ZIA customers have been doing private, now called Service Edge, but what we called before private Zens or private, uh, pri private or virtual uh, Zens that would run on-prem to allow inspection to happen. We're doing the same thing now in ZPA. And then last but not least, B2B. So the foundation that I just highlighted on ZPA, inside-out broker connectivity, uh, browser-based access, that is what B2B is, and our, uh, if you uh, didn't have a chance to see the keynote, the best illustration shows all of this in action is in there, so I'd suggest you go back and rewatch that if you'd like to see it in action. But B2B is all about the same thing that you're trying to do for rethinking users to applications, eliminating the attack surface, doing this zero trust network access style connectivity approach. That is very relevant. I would argue sometimes it could be even more relevant when it is, I'm a company and I'm giving a supplier access to my extranet or my ERP portal, or what I showed on stage was uh, a web development tool that we use internally that we have third parties come in and collaborate with. It's core to how we develop our products. Very sensitive applications that you're giving to third parties. Think about what the attack surface is if you can bring those behind a ZTNA-style access. You obsolete the need for all the kinds of technologies that usually sit in front of those applications and you're, you're dramatically improving your, uh, your security posture with, uh, with B2B. And the pillars of B2B are similar to what I just showed with ZPA, but there's some new ones. So browser access is key because third parties, you're not going to often be able to dictate install my app to access my business app. But you also, we also had to build in the ability to do multiple identities, which is a, a kind of a new concept where it's not just a company or a tenant in a cloud that's consuming identity from their Azure AD or their Ping or Okta or whoever they have. We want customers to be able to federate identity to the third parties because if I'm a company and I'm allowing a, another company into my network, I don't want to create accounts for that other company in my directory. It would be way better if you can just federate identity to them directly. And so we built the ability in ZPA to consume identity from, it's not limited, 
from uh, you know however many third-party suppliers, customers that they have. We'll federate that identity. And then the other piece that we had to build as a part of B2B is browser isolation. So you really need to be careful about the data when you're, especially in a B2B context, the data that reaches the endpoint, because that's a it's a third party. You're not necessarily responsible for securing that endpoint. And so we browser isolation gives us the ability, and this was in the demo as well, to allow the access to occur, but restrain or, or restrict what data can actually leave. And we're doing that by just, it looks like it's a web application, but it's actually just sending pixels to the device. There's nothing that's in the cache. The demo that you would have seen, there's, if you try to copy and paste content, you can't because it's just pixels. You can't even download files and you can put policies around manipulating that. And to Jay's earlier point, the only way you can do that style of control or security is to be in line to the traffic flows. No identity provider that's in line just during authorization and then out of line when they're going to the application. No identity provider is going to be able to do that. You have to be in line all the time, which is obviously core to what we do very well. So that, hopefully that gives you a little bit of a peek on uh, B2B and, uh, and DPA. And with that, I'll hand it back to Amit. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks. All right. So I thought it'd be useful to spend some time um, on core technology differentiation. Uh, there's a fair amount of FUD in the market, so I thought uh, it's a good opportunity to kind of set the record straight. So I'm going to talk about what it takes to be a true cloud service for security. And uh, we're going to have a discussion on four key tenants that we believe are absolutely critical when you're trying to deliver a security cloud service like Zscaler. So we're going to talk about what it means to be born and bred in the cloud. We're going to talk about a service edge architecture. What does that mean? And where are some of the differences uh, between what you hear in the, uh, uh, in the market versus reality? Um, I'm going to spend a lot of time on SSL inspection. If there's one thing I want all of you to uh, go away with is without proper SSL inspection, you cannot do security today. And then finally, uh, we'll wrap it up with uh, zero trust network access. So let's start with uh, being born in the cloud. You know, what's common to Workday, to Salesforce, to even Dropbox and Zscaler? All of these SaaS companies have built their own multi-tenant cloud platforms. And why is that? Um, how many of you have read that article uh, that talks about how Dropbox migrated from AWS to their own cloud uh, infrastructure, right? Good. Um, I mean, the reasons are very, very simple and obvious. One, it gives you strong economics, right? Uh, our gross margins are 81% because we've built a very, very efficient platform. We're using, we're not using someone else's infrastructure. We're not using third-party load balancers. We're not using uh, storage from Oracle or, or, uh, or, or some other vendor, right? It's all based on a true multi-tenant platform that we've built. It gives you elastic scale, and we'll, we'll see that in action. And then, uh, obviously, user experience, right? If you're able to uh, operate this at scale, your end users get a wonderful experience. So let's contrast that to single tenant architectures. Um, how many of you love to watch movies on Netflix or Amazon Prime these days? Okay. How many of you still watch movies on your DVD player? One brave soul. Maybe you invested quite a bit in your home theater system. Um, it's kind of like investing in a data center, right? 
you can be stuck to it. You have to, you have to get value out of it for some time. But uh, imagine if your DVD manufacturer came to you and said, this, you, you love this uh, player, right? It plays awesome, you know, 1080p or 4K movies. I'm going to take this and shove it into AWS. And I'm going to start streaming movies. Do you think that would be a worthwhile cloud service like Netflix? It won't. I mean, look at it from an operator perspective. I'll have to have thousands and thousands of these DVD players, you know. I'll have mechanical Turks loading all these discs, you know. If the same movie is being streamed on a Friday night to a million people, I don't know how to do it, right? Um, imagine the experience from an end user perspective. Today, when I get on a flight, I download some movies, I watch it on a plane. When I get home, I can start watching where I left off. All of those are intrinsic uh, services that Netflix has built, which would be impossible if you just had that mindset that I have these beautiful DVD players and I can shove it into AWS and Azure and start competing with a Netflix-type service, right? So poor economics for the operator. Scaling challenges for the operator, right? And very crappy user experience. So what are security vendors, your legacy single-tenant firewall and proxy security vendors trying to do? Well, you know, kind of that. Um, it's a shot from a movie where they look at each other and say, hey, we got to take this firewall, we have this cloud, and we got to deliver a service, right, using only what we have in this room here, right? So I think fundamentally it's very, very difficult to take single-tenant offerings. Uh, and any time you hear a security vendor tell you, we have, awesome, uh, uh, have an awesome proxy or an awesome firewall, think about the Blu-ray player and what Netflix and Amazon Prime are doing. So let's, uh, let's take a look at a user experience a little more closely. What you're seeing here is a, is a traffic pattern for a Fortune 100 company. And uh, you're seeing the transactions that were happening every hour. And all of a sudden, you see that they were doing about a million transactions an hour. And then uh, there was a worldwide spike where you had three times the amount of traffic. Um, we never saw, that, saw this. Our customer didn't know about it. In a quarterly business review, this popped up, and then we started looking, and they said, wow, yeah, that was when our CEO did his uh, global YouTube webcast, and we had to do nothing, right? The cloud was elastic enough. It absorbed all of that. They never had to do any network configuration changes, right? Imagine if you came home, and uh, your kid said, let's watch a movie, and you said, hold on. I got to reconfigure my router. I got to up the bandwidth so that I can see that movie. That would suck, right? But that's what uh, most uh, vendors uh, push you to do. This is, uh, this is actually how you configure next-gen firewalls in the cloud. You choose the amount of bandwidth. You provision compute capacity in accordance. And guess what happens when you have to change that bandwidth? You get a pop-up message which says, a bandwidth change will require you to redeploy. Your service IP might change. Uh, your, your IPsec VPN tunnel will get reconfigured and it might result in 10 to 15 minutes of downtime. By the way, that's for one virtual firewall. Imagine if you had a hundred of these everywhere. Imagine the headache that is required to manage it, right? At the end of the day, you either run a service or you don't, right? Uh, and then that, it's important to keep that in mind. All right. Let's talk about the second pillar, which is 
the service edge architecture. This is where I think there's a lot of confusion and I think it's very important for all of you to understand this very basic concept. So if you look at the internet today and how our customers access services, they fall into three layers. First you have your users and destinations, right? Uh, so your, your users and devices across locations. So this is your organization across many different countries, many different users trying to access services through many different devices. And then you have compute destinations. Compute destinations are where your servers are actually giving you the processing capabilities, right? And if you look at infrastructure as a service, AWS, GCP, Azure, all of them, they make awesome compute destinations. They have very good infrastructure, but those infrastructures are primarily designed to run a destination application. For example, it is great when you access Gmail over Google's network. So, in order to make that happen, what folks do is they have a few concentrated compute destinations. For example, uh, GCP has 20 regions, 20 compute destinations in the world. Think of them as football field-sized data centers where they have invested in economies of scale, and that's where all the compute resides. It kind of makes sense. Why would I want to build football field-sized data centers in a, in a hundred locations across the world? So they've concentrated that. And then they provide what they call front door services. So in Google's case, there are 6.7 front doors. Let's round that to seven front doors for every compute destination that is available. So 20 data centers that give you compute, about 140 front doors. A front door is kind of like a router. You come to the front door, and then over Google's network, they ship you back to the compute destination, right? That is the same for Azure. That is the same for AWS. That's how they've built out their core infrastructure. So let's take a look at this model and what happens when you try to access an application. Fundamentally, Zscaler or any security provider is providing an edge service, right? You're inspecting content in, a, in an attempt to not slow it down and provide security, and you ship it out. Whatever comes in goes out, right? It's very symmetric. It's not destination as in it's not a server where you come and you get all your data there. It's an edge compute service. So when you try to access, um, let's say, when, when a Zscaler customer or any customer tries to access Office 365, in this case, through this architecture, they hit the nearest Zscaler data center. And this is very important. All the 150 Zscaler data centers are have full compute capabilities. We do not run front doors. Every Zscaler data center is, uh, runs the same hardware, same software, is fully able to process everything locally. So you get local processing at that edge. We peer with Microsoft, with Akamai, with Google, with Apple, with all of these service providers uh, because we have built these data centers where the bulk of the internet is already pulsing through, right? So you hit the nearest Zscaler data center, your entire security stack and all processing happens there. A millisecond hop away is Microsoft's front door, and boom, you are on Office 365, right? Now, let, let's see what happens when you try to run a next-gen firewall in a cloud, in an infrastructure, and, and, ta and take a look at the path. So, first, you can only run that uh, virtual firewall in compute destinations. You cannot run it on the front door. There isn't, there isn't processing capability available there. So what's going to happen is you're going to hit the nearest Google front door. Then Google is going to send all that traffic to the nearest compute region where you will run the virtual firewall. You'll hairpin back, 
you'll come back, enter Microsoft's front door, and then go back to the actual uh, destination that you wanted to, right? So this is the core problem when you try to run an edge service in a third-party infrastructure, right? You have to have compute available at the edge. Does that make sense, right? I know it's a difficult concept, but it's important to understand. Otherwise, you know, DVD players and shoving it in the cloud and everything is awesome, right? Okay. So, Gartner has released this paper, Secure Access Service Edge. Manoj talked about it. Jay mentioned it. Um, it's a great, great paper. I urge all of you to read it. By the way, this is by the same Gartner analysts that, uh, that launched the CASB space and the firewall space. So, they are all kind of understanding what it means to be an access edge. I'm going to read a couple of quotes verbatim from this paper. First, legacy inline network and enterprise firewall vendors lack the expertise to build distributed inline proxies at scale, risking higher costs and or poor performance for SASE adopters. Next, SASE offerings that use only the internet backbone capacity of infrastructure as a service, but without local POPs and edge capabilities, what we just talked about risk latency, performance issues, and resultant end-user dissatisfaction. Third, legacy vendors don't have cloud-native mindset. Hardware-centric vendors and network security vendors will have difficulty adjusting to cloud-native and cloud-based uh, services delivery. And it goes on and on. There's a lot of good material there. I want all of you to have a copy of this uh, and, and, and read it for yourself. Okay. See, the other myth is that uh, Zscaler breaks Office 365. Uh, that's just, it's just bizarre and wrong on so many levels. Let me start off with a graph that we showed uh, at the keynote. Um, Office 365 is the number one application that Zscaler delivers for all our customers. 25% of all the bytes that we ship through our platform is intended for Office 365. In fact, uh, it, is, it has grown 5x uh, since 2016. This is over and above the organic growth rate of our cloud, right? You can see YouTube used to be the number one application. Now Office 365 is the number one application. And the reason for that is very simple. Zscaler delivers an awesome Office 365 user experience without compromising any security. And that's the reason you have uh, 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 Satya Nadella, uh, you know, talking about how um, Zscaler and Microsoft uh, deliver fast and direct access for Office 365 for some of our most demanding customers like GE and Siemens. Okay, so you talked about user experience for critical applications like Office 365. Let's talk about what it means for the administrator to configure. In the case of Zscaler, you could be an organization with 100,000 employees. To make Office 365 work, you have to click on that checkbox in the UI. And that's it. Across all 150 data centers, all your users, everything is taken care of. This is how typically you manage Office 365 configuration on a next-gen firewall. You, t you install a Linux server. You download a third-party application like MindMeld. You configure the miner to go to Office 365, get uh, changing domains and IP addresses, you configure your firewall to dynamically ingest these rules, enable SSL bypasses, and then you hope and pray, right? So, I mean, imagine you have 700 locations, 700 different firewalls. Today, this was a Skype IP. Tomorrow, this is a Yammer IP. You're just playing whack-a-mole, trying to make sure everything just works. 
Many of our customers have talked about uh, how that's been a, a, a hugely problematic experience. And we are an application proxy. We understand applications. Once we, once we know this is Office 365, we, you know, we, we have our uh, APIs with Microsoft, and we can, we can take care of all of that complexity for you very, very easily. It's, it's, yes, this is, uh, and by the way, that is all Microsoft recommended policies, right? Let's talk a bit about SSL inspection. Very, very important. If you, if you follow the news, uh, Google has released this. this these are well-established facts. Mozilla has similar facts. Well over 90% of all content on the Internet is SSL encrypted, right? What does that mean? That means that unless you are inspecting SSL, you are blind to most of the threats. So if you're not inspecting SSL, you cannot detect and block some of the most sophisticated threats. In fact, uh, uh, majority of the threats that Zscaler sees today, the most serious ones, are all delivered inside encrypted connections. If you don't inspect SSL, you cannot do DLP, data loss prevention on the network. Someone attaches a file to their Gmail and sends it. All of that is being delivered using SSL encryption. If I'm not breaking the connection, looking at the email, extracting the attachment, converting that to a PDF file, and then doing a pattern match on it, there is no way for me to know that this is a violation. You have to inspect. Now, here's the dirty secret. The only way to properly inspect SSL content is with a proxy architecture. You have to terminate the connection. You have to assemble different packets. You have to assemble the content, and then you have to scan it. Next-gen firewalls are typically layer 3, layer 4, attempting to give you some app IDs. They are not inspecting content. They just aren't. That's a huge lie if someone says that a next-gen firewall can inspect SSL content. And the important fact here is unless you're inspecting content, you cannot do proper data loss prevention. You certainly cannot do effective security. So what's the burning question? How do next-gen firewall vendors inspect SSL? Anyone, anyone wants to take a stab at it? They don't. they don't, but if they say they do, what do they do? They bolt on a proxy, right? So <laughs> they won't tell you that, but they want to, they want, they'll bolt on a proxy. Well, what happens when you bolt on a proxy to a firewall that hasn't really been designed for performance? Don't take my word for it. Go to the latest NSS lab report on all next-gen firewalls and check what happens when you run full SSL content scanning. By the way, that's a high-end firewall. I won't name the firewall vendor, but you can take a guess at who it is. The, um, the HTTP, no SSL performance, is around 8, 8.5 gigabits per second. The moment you enable SSL scan, it drops by a factor of 15x, right? That is the performance hit you take to basically run, right? Now, Zscale has always been a, pro a proxy. We, have, we were never a firewall. For us, becoming a firewall was easy. It's very hard to be a proxy. We've been an inline proxy. All our 150 data centers have SSL acceleration built in. We run on bare metal. Guess what AWS, Azure, or GCP do not provide in, as part of their infrastructure? SSL acceleration. You just get virtual machines that you can run server loads on, right? So this is a huge problem. 
And this is where economics and other things come in uh, as well when you start thinking about a service. So, net-net. There's rerouting overhead. You saw that, the service edge problem, right? You lose about 2 to 3x there. You lose an order of magnitude when you try to do SSL processing. So, uh, we decided to do a simple test. And um, we chose a user in Texas because my friend Alex there is from uh, Texas. And so, we chose, chose a neutral portion of the U.S. right in the center. And uh, we said, let's do a simple test, a one gigabyte file hosted on Microsoft um, uh, OneDrive and with SSL scan enabled with the users, you know, in the center of the U.S., good networks, east and west. What's the performance? This is the Zscaler performance. Uh, we got about 264 megabits per second in the download with full SSL scanning. Uh, the entire file downloaded in 22 seconds. What's a one gig file? Anyone? It's a one hour Netflix movie, right? So 22 seconds to download a uh, one hour episode. What did uh, the next gen firewall on GCP take? The effective throughput was about 10 megabits per second. The entire file took 720 seconds to download, 25x slower, right? Um, so, not surprising because SSL processing is hard. Number two, when you're going rerouting and hairpinning in and out, you will incur all those latency uh, challenges. Does that make sense? Okay. So, this is a slide I, I stole from Alex. Alex is here. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have named, that, named Alex, but I'm sorry. Uh, so, the, at the end of the day, speeds, feeds, you block this, you didn't block this, you know, that's, you, you hear about it and your eyes gloss over. Finally, what matters is how effective is your overall security, right? And I haven't seen a better way to quantify security at an overall organization level than this uh, slide. Um, so, this is a Fortune 100 company. What you're seeing is, um, is the number of machines that were getting infected with the, with, with the security technologies that were in place. And you can see on an average every month, 100 to 200 different machines were getting affected. And then uh, the company deployed Zscaler. They also enabled application whitelisting. And you can see that virtually all infections were completely eliminated. You heard uh, Hyatt uh, CISO, Ben, talk about the effectiveness of security with SSL scanning, with caution, with, you know, making sure that right policies are set. As an inline proxy, you break those connections, you make sure nothing uh, bad is coming in. If something is infected, they can con communicate with their CNC host. It is better security than sitting as a firewall and just in, uh, inspecting session flows. And finally, zero trust. Patrick talked about it. I think it's uh, important to reiterate that concept. And think of it from a firewall vendor's perspective and then think of it uh, from a Zscaler perspective. So back in the day, you had your data centers. You had one data center, maybe two data centers. You put a lot of firewall uh, in, uh, firewalls in it. Your attack surface was well contained, right? You said, hey, these three locations, as, as long as I lock down these three locations, life is good. Then uh, your mobile users started popping up and they wanted access. So suddenly your attack surface started increasing. Then your branches started popping out and you wanted local internet access. Now you need firewalls there as well. And then as you start moving applications to the cloud with AWS and Azure, that attack surface is just becoming bigger and bigger. 
because if you're a firewall vendor and you have VPN, you, you know, you only see uh, a flat network and all of these individual uh, appliances that need to be configured properly, right? And fundamentally, firewalls are strong, but managing and configuring them is what gets to you. If you look at it from Zscaler's perspective, you are truly running a dark network. There is no, there is no inbound connectivity. Everyone talks to Zscaler. You're behind Zscaler IPs. If you try to discover an organization, you're not going to find anything there, right? So these are all four important concepts, and I want you to think about it as you analyze a Zscaler service with uh, DVD players in the cloud. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Amit. Okay, so we'll take a few questions here. A lot of hands. Uh, I'll start here. Uh, Fatima Bulani, UBS. Uh, hey, Fatima. Thanks for doing the session. Um, a question for you regarding DPA and ZB2B. So they're solving the same uh, functional pain point. So I'm wondering if you can dive into a little bit more detail as to why ZB2B has been carved out as a separate SKU. Because in theory, nothing would stop me as a customer to deploy ZPA for a B2B use case. So if you can flesh that out a little bit, that would be really helpful. Yeah. I'll share my comments, and Patrick can chime in as well. But at the end of the day, they are fundamentally different buying centers and different uh, customers that you're trying to address, right? If I'm, a, I'm an organization, I have my IT organization uh, providing access to internal applications for my workforce, right? And then I have a whole partner ecosystem. Um, some, uh, there's a, you know, there are new uh, economic buyers like uh, the chief digital officer now, and their job is to transform the overall business. So you have, uh, you know, ZPA is more targeted towards the workforce. ZB2B is more targeted towards your partner ecosystem, right? And the, the economic buyers are different. The sales motions are different. Uh, from a technology perspective, very important for us to develop multiple identity provider support, right? Um, if you're just dealing with one organization, it can be Okta or Azure AD and you're good to go. If you are a bigger organization, if you're dealing with a partner ecosystem, you could have 300 different partners with 300 different identity sources, you know. So there are some fundamental technology differences, right? At the end of the day, they are zero trust based, but different economic buyer, different uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, end users. One is a workforce, one is a partner ecosystem, and therefore we feel it's prudent to look at it in two different buckets. And just a quick follow-up on the browser isolation capabilities. I noticed that's only part of the ZB2B SKU. Is there an aspiration or a thought process to bake in some of the browser isolation capabilities in core ZPA? So, mm -hmm. uh, I, I didn't see your browser isolation It is there in both, right? So just to kind of summarize, if you look at ZIA, ZPA, ZIA is for internet-based destinations, ZPA is for private uh, apps. The way we look at browser isolation is it serves both those use cases, right? In the internet access case, maybe you want a more permissive policy where you want users to be able to go to, say, miscellaneous and unknown destinations but without the risk for infection. So all of that content gets rendered in a, in a safe, uh, isolated browser. On the private access uh, case, uh, the use case could be for more sensitive documents. You might want to provide visibility, but not the ability to download and have a local copy. So we see browser isolation as helping uh, both uh, across the entire spectrum, where you have 
uh, things that you don't care about but they are risky and things that you care about deeply uh, and you want to protect. So just to add to uh, what Amit said in terms of B2B, this is Manoj for the webcast. Uh, uh, so uh, the reason it is a completely separate product from ZPA is because of the way it gets deployed to actually Sanmina is doing a uh, probably overlapping uh, uh, talk right now about their deployment of uh, B2B. It took them a total of 30 minutes from start to finish to deploy B2B because what did they do? They changed their DNS name to point to Zscaler, they deployed a connector, they loaded a certificate, and they were done. It that's it. Traffic starts flowing and you have nothing to do. It's pointing to an identity provider of their customer. There's nothing to do. It's a very different deployment model from what we do for ZPA for employees for remote access, right? Uh, uh, technology is similar but not quite the same. The uh, other part for B2B also is having a portal, a landing portal. There's no such thing for ZPA. It's your own applications. But when you log in from for B2B applications, based on your entitlement, uh, what you have subscribed to as services, when you log in, uh, when you go through ZPA B2B, you are going to land on a user portal that shows you, hey, these are the applications that you are allowed to, that when you click on, will call outbound and connect to you, right? The uh, actual people who deploy it are actually building it into the application. So it is with the application, built with the application, so as they orchestrate it out, the ZPA connector is orchestrated out and just connects out, right? So, uh, so that is also very different from a form factor of how we do remote access or ZPA for third parties, this customer facing. And lastly, I think somebody asked the question about uh, how we will price and go to market. It's not user-based. I can't, there's too many users. So it has to be based on how many applications, what is the volume, what type of application it could be a IoT application just occasionally showing up. It could be a massive continuous data stream application in which case the amount is huge. So it's a different billing model altogether, different buying center. So a lot of things that are very different about B2B uh, uh, and that's why it's a separate product. And uh, uh, absolute has a, uh, or isolation has a very key element there as well, more from a WAF standpoint uh, in this case. Yeah, and given my uh, starting comment at the beginning of the analyst day, uh, give us time to give you more information as these products become generally available. We'll give you more insight into that. Uh, I think thanks. we will take one more and then uh, we'll Great. Thanks so much. Brad Zelnick with Credit Suisse. Thanks so much for a great day. Amit, in particular, thank you so much for helping to dispel a lot of the myths that are out there. But I want to hit you with another one that I commonly hear from those that see the firewall as the center as the sun within their universe of, around which all the, or, the, the other planets orbit, which is that you know, even if I take the performance hit of hairpinning through the front door of a destination cloud, and, and even if I, I also turn on proxy capabilities in order to handle or decrypt SSL traffic to perform better security and, and everything else, that perhaps there's still a benefit if I'm able to have a single vendor, synchronized policy across a hybrid architecture in a state that, you know, I still have a lot of data centers perhaps and firewalls and what if I can marry this all together with one vendor? Maybe it does make sense to, to put my eggs in their basket and take that hit. What would you say to that? So first, 
if you look at this whole hybrid model that you just described, where I have a virtual firewall appliance in, a, in GCP AWS, and then I have a physical firewall appliance on-premise, this notion that there's a magic single console that manages everything is not true, right? The logging that you get from that service is different from the logging that you get here. Uh, some capabilities work here, but don't work there, right? And you've got to go back to that simple DVD example, right? Can I stream a movie uh, with a box from an infrastructure? Yes, but you'll quickly start losing many of the capabilities. For example, you're going to lose the ability to, to, uh, to play a movie here and start off where you left off. Now, if you look at that from a firewall vendor perspective, even basic things like logging. When I buy a Zscaler service, I buy it for X users and I get six months of standard logging. I don't have to worry about storage and right-sizing my, uh, my S3 buckets or any of those types of things. The fact is when you do these types of hybrid models, it's a shared, um, uh, it's kind of a shared ownership model. You're responsible for, uh, for procuring the right amount of infrastructure in AWS and Azure. You are responsible for right-sizing your storage buckets. There's, a, uh, there's all these documents around, if I wanted to get X months of logs, what kind of storage do I have to buy? So you are procuring all of these different components and trying to, um, you know, basically band-aid them together into a service. At the end of the day, users want a simple service that just works, right? You pay a per-user subscription. I don't want to manage a different infrastructure. Then you start getting into things like SLA. You look at the SLA for that type of service, you read through the fine print, and it turns out that the basic SLA is 99.9%. Why? Because that's the basic SLA that AWS or GCP provides. If you want to build four nines or five nines, then you're responsible for spinning up multiple redundant uh, virtual firewall machines and then uh, try to deal with that, right? So at the end of the day, you can hand wave your way um, but if you're a DVD manufacturer, you will probably sell boxes. You will, that is your center of gravity. And then when someone says, but what about my mobile work case? Well, yeah, we'll figure out. We'll, we'll give you something. But that's not truly their core strength. And over time, you have to believe that that's the predominant use case that dominates. Sorry about that. Sorry. Uh, so to add to that, uh, we hear about the uh, uh, single console use case all the time. But uh, I have a different acquisition of a CSPM vendor. I have a different acquisition of an endpoint vendor. I have a different acquisition. It's not really a single pane of glass ever when you acquire companies and try to put it together. The second uh, point to make, actually to add to Amit's uh, Netflix DVD example, is uh, you all remember Blockbuster. Uh, also had started a cloud service, but it would stream only in standard definition. If you wanted high def, you had to get DVDs. That is because you have to conserve your business model. So when you go to cloud, you get a different performance. When you go to box, you get a different performance. You need high performance, great, let's get hybrid and put boxes in your data center because you need high performance. When did Netflix tell you that? Netflix streams 4K to your home from the cloud because they can. 
blockbuster would have never done that. It would be shooting themselves in the foot. So this notion of hybrid is a protectionist notion for an appliance vendor that needs to keep its old stuff running. If you can do it really well in the cloud, why would a customer ever say, no, 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 give me an appliance to maintain in addition to taking on your SLAs? Just doesn't make sense for a customer. When you talk to a customer, customers never want hybrid. They get forced into hybrid. They want one solution that fits everywhere. You just heard Mars in the previous conversation, 600 locations. He wants one consistent policy across the board, same speed, same outcomes, no matter how many acquisitions he does. You have to do it pure cloud. So the last point on that is uh, we hear about east-west, north-south, uh, or oh, what about uh, on-prem stuff? Well, those rules have nothing to do with each other. When you are talking about an employee going out to applications in the cloud versus a server talking to another server, you never use the same firewall, nor the same firewall rules. Even if it is physically on one firewall, you have a completely different zone policy that looks like a completely different firewall, and that has nothing to do with A and B. So it, it's cute to say, oh, you got one console, but not the, the teams are not the same, so they are completely isolated from each other in terms of configuring the policy. The policies are kept separately, and the buying centers are different. So it doesn't really chive. All right, thank you. Um, <coughs> next, we have a uh, please to present uh, a customer of ours, Alex Phillips, uh, the CIO of NOV. Um, with, he'll, we'll also have some time for Q&A at the end of his presentation, but after that, we'll take a short 10-minute break. Okay. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, has anybody heard my story before? Okay, a few of you. All right, so I'm going to summarize some of that. We'll talk about what's happened in the last year for us and what we're looking at going forward. So we began our security journey a long time ago, and we had to do it with boxes, right, and lots of vendors. And oil was a nice high price. And so we picked best of breed for each area of protection that we needed. And so we had applications all over the world. Um, we've got about 635 facilities in 66 countries, and we've got about 27,000 users today. Um, we used to be 65,000 users, um, actually employees, about 41,000 users. And what was interesting is in 2014, there was this little thing that happened that greatly impacted us. And the price of oil plummeted from a hundred and something dollars a barrel down into the 30s. It was a horrible experience. I would have given plasma to survive, right? I mean, it, it is bad. And so when you're in the oil field, you know that it's cyclical in nature. Well, we had all these wonderful appliances and um, they were all getting old. They were five, six years old. And anybody that's familiar with appliance vendors, you know that there's a life cycle to appliances. 
They last five or six years. And so our appliances were on their last legs. We're going to have to replace them all. We also do a ton of acquisitions. We've done a lot of growth via acquisitions. I've been involved in about 250 to 300 acquisitions over my 22-year career. And we are like the Borg. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. And so we're always merging people in. And with appliances, you learn the hard way that they're never the right size when you're doing acquisitions. And so you're cranking along with a 100-meg box, and all of a sudden you need a 250-meg box. What do you do? You have to buy a new box. Well, now what do you do with the old box? And so we're, we're running through this constant problem. Oil crashes. We've got to replace all of our boxes. We now have 10 gig boxes in multiple places around the world. Um, due to security problems, we had consolidated everything down to about 12 to 15 egress points around the world because we needed visibility. What's interesting, though, is we couldn't afford redundancy. All those boxes are really, really expensive. So I had one box. If something went wrong with that box, I just had to bypass the box. And so then the protection was no longer there. I couldn't afford SSL decryption. At the time that we began this journey in 2016, about 50% of our traffic was SSL encrypted. Today that number is 86%. And so back in 2016, we were only looking at 50% of our traffic for protection. And so we, we knew that the world was changing. We knew that our applications were changing. We knew that we had no choice but to do something different to change our ways because our old ways were just too expensive. And so we began down the journey of trying to figure out what do we do next. And we had MPLS circuits everywhere, and those are expensive. And we knew that we needed to move more towards Internet-based circuits. And so we began the journey with Zscaler. Um, we were able to convert all of about 95% of our users in 30 days. And so that was a drastic change. And then we were able to get the remaining 5% in the next 60 days. And then we began the journey on turning SSL decryption on. And that was probably one of the greatest eye-opening events of my career. The amount of evil that is in SSL traffic is truly stunning. And when we started looking at, okay, what are we protecting? What are we finding? We found a lot of phishing. We found a lot of ransomware. And when we started diving into that, trying to understand where is all this coming from, it turned out that it was our user's personal email. And so most of us, I'm sure most of you, check your personal email at work. Well, that puts your machine at jeopardy if there's malicious content in your personal email. And so we were protecting our users from their personal email threats. And what's another interesting part is, being in 66 countries, there's a lot of privacy concerns. There's work councils you have to deal with. And with my old solutions, we were never able to get permission to decrypt SSL because we would have access to that data. When we did it with Zscaler, I don't have access to that data. I know because I asked, and they wouldn't give it to me. And that's another interesting differentiator. I don't have, so they're decrypting the SSL traffic, inspecting it, protecting my users, and as a company, I don't have access to that data, which is important for an employee. It's important for me. I check my personal email at work, and I don't want my company looking at my personal email. So I found that to be very, very valuable. 
So we're going along the journey. Things are working well. We're, re we're actually blocking a lot of threats. And we started on the journey of Office 365 and moving a lot of applications to the Internet. And we started noticing that our users were struggling trying to figure out when do I turn the VPN on and when do I not need the VPN. And what's interesting about this is we'll take an application that a lot of our users use, and that's SharePoint. And we're in a hybrid SharePoint mode. It takes a long time to migrate your on-prem SharePoint environments up to the cloud. Well, while you're in this hybrid mode, you've got some up in the cloud, some of them are inside your data centers. If your users are inside your network, both work fine. They don't even notice it. But if they're outside your network and they go to SharePoint Online and they're accessing, everything's great, but as soon as they click a link that takes them to an internal SharePoint farm, it just fails. And the users don't know why. And so then you, you tell the users, well, you've got to launch your VPN. And so we started understanding pretty quickly that only IT knew where the apps were because some of them were being migrated, and that wasn't even true. <laughs> Sometimes we don't know. Did, is that on-prem or have we already moved that? And so we decided we needed to take the approach where it doesn't matter where the app's at. The user has access to it. And so we went down the Zscaler private access route. And so today, all of our users use that as their sole VPN to access anything inside of our company. Uh, we deprecated our old VPNs, and those are no longer in use. Um, some other interesting things. I recently discovered that um, my IT career has been uh, to the detriment of performance for my users. So I've been in IT 22 years. And 22 years ago, every single facility that we had had a server. On that server were files that the users used in that facility. It was a print server. It was their email server. It was their identity server. So everything they needed was at their local facility. Well, being in IT and, you know, we have to make things better, we decided that was too much administrative burden. We're going to move all these servers back to data centers. You guys have heard this story before, right? Data center consolidation. It works really great for IT. It sucks for the users because now the users have to access all their data across slow links. So I did that. Made the world worse for, you know, my colleagues. And then security problems hit. And so you've got to really get a grip on what's moving over your networks, what's happening on your users' endpoints, right, which computers are using. And so you decide you need to hub and spoke everything instead of having a mesh network. Well, that makes the user experience worse. And then you decide, hey, now we need to really harden your machine and protect your machine. And we're going to do application whitelisting so we can stop files that you accidentally download from infecting your system. Now certain apps that they need to use don't work. And so my entire career, unfortunately, has been about making the user experience worse. And I had an executive come to me and say, Alex, you realize that in 1995, with a dial-up modem, my experience was better than it is today. And that was a slap in the face. And so I really started thinking about that. I mean, I have a mission to, to deliver secure, anytime information technology, anywhere, anytime, on any device, almost any device. We don't support Blackberries anymore. Um, but it's one of those things that wakes you up. And when we started down the Zscaler journey, we didn't think about it, but we were actually figuring out how we're going to 
do both, offer great security and great user convenience. And that process has led us down the road to where now we're thinking about, hmm, how do we look at user experience? And there's lots of tools out there. Most of them you install an agent on a server. You're looking at them from that point of view. Well, what's interesting is when I think about my users, they already have an agent. It's their private access agent on their endpoint. All their data goes through Zscaler in the cloud. Zscaler's data centers are the closest thing I have to my SaaS applications, to the destinations on the Internet. So who's going to be able to give me more insight than anyone else, Zscaler, on where the problems are? They have an agent on all my machines, and they're at the furthest point closest to the destination. And so as we look forward, we look forward to looking at how do we explore that and how do we figure out how to improve the user experience. So that's my shortened story. Um, I have lots of slides. I could bore you to death. But I'm sure there's questions. Yeah, so we'll take some questions for Alex. coming your way. Simple question. Sure. What can Zscaler be doing better? So I have a big long list. Top three, top five. <laughs> um, I think that they can do better in a couple of different ways that we've had to put workarounds in place. So uh, we're big on security automation and orchestration. And one of those areas that we struggled with in the past was around some of our dense countries where they're real close together, like EU, will get the wrong language when they go to a website. So how do we solve for that? Um, also, some websites are not categorized. And so you've got that miscellaneous categorization. Um, Zscaler makes sure that there's no threats on it, but it's just a miscellaneous category. And so I'd like to see that done a little better. Um, those are the top two, but I do have a big, long list. We, we shared that with engineering a few months ago. But um, we've been very, very pleased with how they've helped us transform how we think about things. Can you also just talk a little bit about how your spend with Zscaler has trended from the beginning of the journey to where you are today in, in relative terms or whatever you're comfortable with and maybe even relative to your other spend on traditional network security. Thanks. Yeah, so on the, on the original journey, what we found was that there was no CapEx, right? Moving to Zscaler eliminated $2 million of CapEx spent for me because I was going to have to replace all these old appliances. And OpEx, Zscaler displaced three vendors for me, and Zscaler's cost OpEx was cheaper than the OpEx I was paying of those three vendors combined. So to me, it was a cost optimization move, which I had to do. Um, adding ZPA, so the, the private access, was, a, was not a cost savings move. But it was a security move, and it was a, an, an employee experience move. And so that, that was an ad. And we just recently re-signed for another three years. 
So we just finished our, our three-year commitment, and we signed up for another three years. Awesome. Hey, Alex, uh, yes. Sackett Kelly at Barclays. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for coming. Um, I think, uh, to your point, you, you know, I, think, I think some of us have heard from you before. And the last time we spoke, I think one of the things you, you were thinking about, and you may have touched on this with the 2 million CapEx, but maybe um, uh, uh, you know, taking a, a closer look at your firewall footprint in your branch offices, right? Specifically getting rid of them, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, I guess, uh, assuming that that's been done so far, what did you replace those with? Has it just been Zscaler, or was there any sort of other hardware to come into those branch offices? That's the first question. And then the second question is, ever since then, you know, has your security posture changed? Is, is there anything that you, you know, you've learned from that or anything that you regret? Or do you wish you would have done it sooner? Does it all make sense? It does. So my goal is every single facility has an Internet site. I want the stupidest box I can put at a facility to route the traffic to the cloud where it can be protected. In three years' time, I have not had to worry about patching. I have not had to worry about, oh, this appliance is the wrong size. I have not had to worry about, oh, my goodness, this firmware is blocking something or not working right. Zscaler's done multiple upgrades, and it's just worked seamlessly. When I look at my branches, we're, we're on that journey to giving Internet to them. Uh, we're seeing about a 4X savings versus MPLS. We're going with a cheap white box solution, and we're putting an SD-WAN piece of software on there. I would love to eliminate that at some point. I would love to just say, hey, Zscaler, here's all my traffic. Route it where it needs to go. Okay, so thanks for that. Uh, we'll take a 10-minute break, and we'll be back.
So, is is Dolly online? Dolly is online. Okay. Yep, I'm on. Can you hear me, Jay? Yeah, good, good, Dolly. Thank you. Uh, Okay, we're back. Uh, thanks for joining us again. Um, we'll proceed with our next session. We're talking about our go-to-market. Uh, Jay Chowdhury, CEO and Chairman, will be presenting. We also have uh, our new CRO, Dolly uh, Reich, on to uh, also make some comments towards the end. And both of them will be available for some questions at the end. Jay? Excellent. Thank you, Bill. If, if you are driving transformation, your sales need to be different as well. So, over the past years, early on when we tried to sell like a typical security product, we soon learned that it doesn't really work. Right? So, we adapted, we learned, and we moved on to what we call top-down strategic selling for transformation. It's a, it became a visionary sale. Okay. And I'm going to walk you through exactly what we do, how we do, and I'm very excited that Dolly is joining us to take to the next level. A few slides on where we sell, how we sell. 
As I mentioned during my keynote, that early on, some of the large customers like GE and Nestle, they fell in love with Zscaler, bought it, and we kind of said, wow, that's wonderful. And we started focusing on large enterprises. So if you look at the four market segments we're showing on this slide, uh, major is an important part of sales process as we evolved our sales teams, right? It used to be a field sales team first. Then we added some inside sales team. Then field sales team naturally gets uh, more uh, granular, doing better segmentation. So we eventually have broken into three areas. There are people who have major account managers. They deal with major accounts. These are some of the largest companies in the world. The next level, we have what we call large enterprises. And these companies are typically with over 10,000 employees. And then we have below, if you get to the next level, about 3K to 10K, and that's what we call enterprise, right? Next level. And then below 3K, what we call general business, is driven by inside sales. Okay. So if we are doing top-down strategic selling, right, we really are identifying some of the key decision makers who can drive transformation. So it's a pretty high-touch sale. On the top part, I'm showing it's more of a strategic sale. Now, on the lower end, many times we do get what we call transactional sale, right? Transactional will be typically a customer looking and saying, I am uh, out of uh, support from this proxy box or whatever the box may be. And I like to move to the cloud. We never say no to taking a PO, right? Customers need it. That becomes a beachhead for us. Uh, but on the other side, if a CIO is starting a project and says, I am embracing the cloud, I'm moving my application, Office 365 needs to be rolled out, then it starts very differently. Then you have head of applications coming together, head of networking comes together, and security gets in the loop to say, if you are doing network transformation, if you're doing local breakouts, I may need to make sure security is done right. So that's what we are indicating uh, a strategic sale. So the sale can start from either side, but most of the cases, these are strategic top-down that sale. And also, when you're doing something new and different, okay, you have to end up creating awareness and demand and the like. When the market becomes commoditized, then you end up selling more and more uh, channel-led. So early on, we, we end up doing a fair amount of heavy lifting and selling ourselves. So it's a pr pretty high-touch uh, sale. Okay. So a lot of business coming from the top, there's a significant opportunity to come down uh, the triangle. Right? That's an opportunity for us. In fact, if you look at most SaaS companies, they start at the low end, actually. And, and they get a lot of business because low end small businesses actually need SaaS. They have fewer resources. Now, that's equally true for security as well. Uh, but the difference is large companies actually need security, their resources. So we started from top down. And one of the reasons to do that was, in my view, Companies that start at the low end generally struggle to go up high up. 
Okay, the products generally are designed for smaller companies. They, they can handle the, the richness of functionality that's needed. It's easier to come down. So our product, if it can satisfy the needs of the Siemens and Shell and DHLs of the world, it can easily meet the needs of small companies. We just dumb down user interface. You don't have to worry about a small box and large box and the like. And if you look at the channel I try to map up there, on the higher end, the transformation, SP and SI kind of partners get involved. So we are driving the sale. As you start moving down, we're getting more and more help from SP, SIs, and we're jointly working on those. And when it comes to low end, it's really the inside sale working with the bars. Now, that's a, a broad directional thing. It's not that exactly every situation is like that. There are some good boutique born-in-the-cloud bars who actually are doing some good business in the cloud because they don't have a lot of legacy box business to worry about. Uh, a number of you saw this slide. We're very proud of the progress we're making on the higher end, 400 plus of the largest global 2,000 companies. And as I mentioned, it's uh, across all verticals. We are uh, a horizontal product offering. It's true that some areas where they are more distributed, more spread out, like manufacturing of the world, embraced up earlier. Uh, on the financial services side, as you probably know, the banks have been slow in embracing the cloud. But somehow insurance companies have picked our cloud a lot faster. In fact, a lot of large insurance companies are these killer customers. A number of banks have become our customers as well, and we're seeing more adoption coming from the large banks now. And Office 365 is finally actually getting accepted in some of the largest banks, and they're all planning to roll it out. They just needed to get full comfort and assurance from Microsoft, but data privacy, we think it's there. Banks are telling us, and Microsoft is telling us, get ready for some of those large uh, banks. Uh, but very pleased, and I think whether it's 3 of 3 or 5 of 5 or 7 of 11, uh, all these companies, with probably exception of few because of timing and all, almost all Internet and SaaS-bound traffic that goes through us. And that's, that's something we're very proud of. So large enterprises, why, right? You know, a number of factors play into it. So first of all, you know, we built a rich product with the functionality that large enterprises need. That's number one. Number two, uh, it may be founder's bias. I come from enterprise sales background during my days at IBM and other companies. So I had natural affinity to go and talk to CIOs and CTO type of people in large banks. But when you look at the functionality you need, the larger the company, the more security savvy they are, the bigger security teams, they need security, they, they actually analyze security, proper evaluations get done. And when you have rich functionality, you win. So when we are in a real situation, even though generally it's not even a bake off, but there's a lot of architectural discussions about this and that. I mean, the kind of proxy thing you just heard here, that's just a little the tip of the iceberg. There are lots of people out there who don't understand the new way of doing it. Uh, but you know, large teams, good teams, we end up winning in that thing always. 
Uh, bigger the company, bigger the network complexity, bigger the pain. So there's desire to solve that, to simplify that. And then you combine the network complexity with cloud adoption, it actually further start accelerating. Uh, that's where things like Office 365 and other applications come in. Uh, appliance overload, everyone really is worried about those and then they want to get rid of it. They want to simplify it. They want to save cost. Uh, and the when cost, the bigger the company, the bigger the network, the bigger the MPLS cost, the more pain to bring it down. <clears throat> and data privacy, large companies are into data privacy, small companies and all. When you put all these factors together, all these large companies become better target for us than smaller companies. Okay. And that's why we have kind of focused on large companies and we've done very well there. This is a chart we, we just recently put together. I think probably most of you are seeing it for the first time. <coughs> this was our analysis of top 25 uh, largest Zscaler customers. And we looked at various modules to see what kind of adoption are we having uh, based on various modules. Rather than trying to, we looked, I tried to do it by bundles, but bundles are so coarse, just two bundles. They don't really give the, the deeper insight this chart gives us. So the green basically saying what the initial purchase was by the customer. And, and the, call it reddish, whatever color you call it, uh, is the upsell, right? Now, most of the column you're seeing out there, we have done full breakout of uh, Zscaler internet access. ZPA, right now, we're shown only as one column. It's an early stage over time as we kind of do uh, more modular stuff. We'll share more with you. Uh, but in the case of ZIA, as we said, essentially almost all cases when they buy something, it's for all, all users. Uh, ZPA starts the other way around. In most cases, Z, ZPA, they say, I want to solve this problem. Uh, but you can see uh, pretty good penetration across all areas. Uh, first column, secure web gateway. That's essentially is a typical business that you would have competing with blue coats and web sense of the world. And then you're looking at advanced threat protection with SSL inspection, application control to bandwidth control. Uh, bandwidth control is becoming very popular <coughs> to make sure important applications get high priority to our cloud firewall, to sandboxing, to DLP. We put DLP in two columns, DLP and DLP exact data match. We can charge a lot more money for exact data match because that's a heavy-duty functionality. When customers want it, they need it. And then IoT server protection, we carved out that product probably by, oh, 12 to 18 months ago. Uh, we start to see that there was so much traffic leaving the enterprise that was not user traffic. We found that there was lots of IoT traffic, lots of traffic coming from servers GE started using us early on when they would have the traffic moving from servers in the data center to servers sitting in AWS, and they wanted to go through some security check posts. And they couldn't think of what. They said, oh, Zscaler, the proxy, start logging and telling me what's going on. Then they said, 
oh, logging is good, but I can do a policy. I can say these servers can only talk to those servers. So that's the kind of value we're adding. So that became a skew by itself because it's, it's, a, it's a valuable thing. Our pricing is essentially value-based. And then guest Wi-Fi security. Typically, every enterprise has guest Wi-Fi. You go to the company, there's a guest Wi-Fi sitting or being able to charge for that kind of stuff. So uh, pleased uh, with the penetration. Moving on, you, some of you have seen this chart. So, buckets, where uh, from channel point of view the revenue is coming from, right? Have seen this chart? Um, SISPs are essentially a little more than 50%. VARs, about 45-some percent. <coughs> Direct is 5 Most people get confused <coughs> with it. They think that, huh, direct versus indirect. <coughs> I would say, uh, as a strategy, all business goes through channel. The reason you see direct is because some customers have traditionally insisted that they want to really give directly the order through us. So this, you don't expect this number to grow. <coughs> the key thing we are trying to work on is getting more and more leverage from the channel. Okay. Uh, even if that we do the all the work we actually end up doing fulfillment through channel. So on one extreme, channel does fulfillment. On the other extreme, channel does everything the PO shows up in the inbox. <laughs> uh, the, I would love to be in the second place. Uh, we have a fair amount of work to do to get there uh, today, uh, especially with transformational new stuff. We, we are evangelizing. We are creating a visionary sale we end up doing a fair amount of heavy lifting. But what we're seeing is, as the market is moving, our channel is actually doing more heavy lifting every year than they did before. Uh, there used to be where uh, we had to go and tell the customer now with SD van type of stuff happening, more and more RFPs are happening where customers say, I need to do van um, transformation, and Zscaler gets listed uh, become part of it because without a proper security cloud, you can't do your uh, local breaker type of stuff. Uh, in the case of value-added resellers, um, there's a range. There's some who are focused, who want to pivot from the old world, and they're doing pretty well with us. That number is still small. But the others, like box vendors, are hoping that the cloud will never happen. So it's kind of a, that's why you see probably limited uh, a business from VAR channel, but it's, it's an important channel for us. So uh, that's our overall channel strategy. Uh, this chart tries to <coughs> show you how and where sales are different from Zscaler versus others. I mean, I've been part of three box companies. My first startup, Secure IT, and we sold <coughs> tons of checkpoint firewalls, a bunch of other <coughs> appliances. Uh, Air Defense and CyberTrust, the other two security startups I did, is all the boxes. I used. I would have 400 to 600 channel partners <coughs> and teams really going and working with them. Uh, and, and most of the time, security sales are done to techies by VAR channel. Uh, here's my 
really fast, <coughs> shiny box. Okay. We soon realize early on that that technical team is not driving transformation. Transformation is driven from the top. <coughs> so that's where we start to put more and more focus on figuring out how to engage a CIO, CTO, and CISO. So those are actually primary drivers. And along with them, the next level, they bring their architects along. They buy the Z-Scaler story. They love it, and they say, I like it, but let me have my architects poke holes into it. We end up typically doing three to six-hour workshops. And in large accounts, they end up being multiple workshops. So that's what we are talking about, strategic and architectural sales. And, and the second part, in terms of channel, when network transformation happens, customers typically say, I would like to have my, uh, my SP partner, service provider partner, uh, get engaged because they are managing the networks. So quite often, uh, they get engaged with us. We have been working with SP providers for quite a while. I mean, they used to be one of those things and say it's a little bit conflict, uh, but they all have woken up to the fact that MPLS is going away. They would rather proactively manage in it, otherwise someone else will come and do it for them. Uh, on the application migration side, where Zscaler private access plays, we are building stronger relations with systems integrators. As you know, ZPA is a new product, relatively a couple of years old. So the, our focus on SI started a couple of years ago. It's building, it's growing, and it's a, it's a very good fit for selling ZPA. And I already talked about the, the personas we deal with. And on rep side, right, typically you have reps and SC. I think that works in a mature market, in our market. A couple of roles, the architects are extremely important roles, okay, because they end up driving the change. How does your network change? How does security change? Um, CTOs and CISOs are actually very helpful. You saw that Dan Shelton, in fact, he wanted to join and evangelize up that type of stuff. He has been doing a great job. Larry Bigini, who retired from GE years ago, and he wanted to kind of get back and evangelize the thing he, he loves. And those type of things are good for us, and we are investing in those resources. Um, so we think what we have developed here is a fairly differentiated go-to market, uh, which is very different than what typical security box vendors do. Um, this is some of the examples of some of the SIs and SV partners. If you looked at top 10 or even 15 service providers, everyone has done some amount of business with us or decent amount of business with us, some more than others, but they all are engaged. And that's partly because as we went out early, we evangelized Zscaler, and customer has asked and told ASP, I would like you to provide Zscaler for me. And with that, the opportunity grows. On the SI side, here are some of the example partners. Folks like Avanat, you may not have seen it, but these guys are big system integrators for IBM. They're actually partly owned by Accenture, a little bit piece owned by Microsoft. They're focused on Microsoft consulting Office 365 deployments. Since we are so closely engaged with Office 365, uh, they're good partners. 
and you see a number of uh, what we call I6, India's top success sites, and Deloitte's of the world. Uh, good opportunity. This is kind of still uh, early stage since we got moving in it in the recent couple of years, but a good opportunity. So, so with that, I'm going to uh, get Dolly on stage. He wanted to be here. He couldn't get here. But Dolly is going to share with you some of his thoughts. As you know, he, he just joined us last week. He's actually officially supposed to be on vacation. There's been lots happening. Uh, but he'll, he'll give some of his thoughts, and he and I both will take Q&A at the end. Dolly? Thanks. Thanks, Jack. Can you hear me? Yes. Pretty clear. Hi, everybody. I uh, was looking forward to meeting everybody in person, but um, to Jay's point, I'm either on vacation or am I there. My over-eagerness during interval training, I think, afforded me a pinched muscle on my back, so um, uh, we'll get through it. In the meantime, though, I thought uh, what I would do is uh, take this opportunity to uh, introduce myself a little bit uh, as far as my background. Um, then I thought I would share why I joined Zscaler. And then I also thought, given I don't have any specifics or details to share yet on plans and strategy, I would at least throw you into some of the philosophies and principles that I believe in and that, uh, quite frankly, I've executed against uh, throughout my career. So just uh, jumping into this briefly, um, heritage is Croatian. I grew up in Hamburg, Germany, came to the U.S. at the age of 16, and to the uh, surprise of my parents, after my foreign exchange student year, decided to stay and been here since. Uh, lived out on the East Coast, West Coast in Chicago today with my family, and uh, Chicago has always uh, been a great middle point for travel, which, uh, which I firmly believe in. I'm a fan of uh, being in front of customers and uh, with teams, and uh, I'm going to continue practicing that. Now, why Zscaler? Um, it's an interesting question because when I decided it was time to move on, I looked at some of the uh, top companies in the Forbes Cloud 100 list and um, decided on Z for quite a few reasons that uh, just stood out as, as very unique to me. Number one, uh, if you look at the leadership team, it is experienced. It has serially successful executives on it. And I think as everybody's noticed, they're, they're quite humble, uh, humble in their approach, uh, yet not humble in their goals and aspirations to really drive a paradigm shift uh, in the cloud. And um, that was very similar to what I experienced at AppDynamics and it was, a, it was a tremendous journey and, uh, and one which I was hoping to repeat and maybe take to even greater heights. The market, um, the teams talked about it. It's a huge TAM. It has huge adjacent TAMs, and it's a transformative and disruptive situation across every vertical. And quite frankly, that's, that's unique to find, um, especially because the market is ready to be shaped. And that's, I think, what a big goal is for, for Zscaler. The product, um, I've rarely come across a product of, of such quality at the enterprise level, and Jay spoke to it. Usually everybody starts small and tries to grow into big. Uh, we solved the enterprise layer and the complexity first, and uh, that means the rest uh, is really going to be easier to go after, which also is very similar to what I experienced at, uh, at AppDynamics. Now, being customer-driven and being really customer-focused is a tagline a lot of companies use, um, but Zscaler practices it, and that was also a point that was uh, really appealing. And, and uh, most importantly, all the great go-to-market elements that drive true, quantifiable customer impact 
um, already in place. And that is a really great foundation to build off of. So to Jay's point, I've not officially started, uh, but I've had the chance to have a lot of great conversations with a few folks. So um, I thought uh, I would share a few of my philosophies that we'll be exploring within the next few months as well. And most of these philosophies really have been shaped throughout my experience at uh, Variant BMC and then most recently uh, the adventurous journey I had at AppDynamics. Uh, qu quite frankly, um, I, I almost feel like I'm experiencing deja vu a little bit, uh, similar inflection points, similar market forces, similar competitive forces as to what we went through at AppDynamics about two years or so ago. So to start with, I I'm a believer in a high-velocity land and expand model as what Jay laid out earlier. Um, the only time you can really practice that is if you have great products. Otherwise, you're trying to back up the truck, sell as much as you can, and get out of town. And that's just not the model here where we're partnering with customers and trying to really shape the direction of their business. In order to do that, um, we are really going to probably explore, as I have in the past, creating a closely knit lifecycle uh, approach across the entire customer engagement. What that means is close linkage between lead creation, first contact, throughout the sales process, deployment, customer success, and then renew or expand. When a close-knit life cycle is created, a seamless process, if you will, value realization for a customer happens, maximum velocity and yield for our activity happens, and stickiness of customers happens. And the entire organization is really working against the same uh, playbook of metrics. Now, when you start talking about multidimensional go-to-market models, as Jay alluded to earlier, that's even more important because you have other elements, outside elements, that even though they're partnering and helping you, it's always your brand uh, that's impacted. So having close partnership and that being part of the life cycle is going to be critical. Um, I'm a firm believer that in order to maintain an increased velocity, you have to have a qualification framework that you uh, uh, religiously follow, and that's been medic for me. It's a model that's been out there for quite some time. I've used it across three companies. And what a qualification model means that is executed across every step of the sales process is you minimize any waste in activities, you drive maximum relevance in customer meetings, and most importantly, you dictate pace and direction of uh, customer thinking and sales campaigns. So, um, Another point that is really the main one in everything that I've done in the past is creating any metric-based model around rep productivity. And that, to me, is the stat number one because everything else flows off of it. That's time to productivity, size of productivity, productivity across geos, various cohorts, and then, quite frankly, understanding all the ecosystem variables from channel, SI, marketing, uh, uh, customer support, engineering, understanding the impact of all those variables to productivity and creating a model that automates that so that we're tracking relevant metrics. And um, when we talk about relevant metrics, it means introducing a little bit more science so that we can help reps, help the field across all activities, understanding progression, conversions, influencing factors on size of deal, on time to deal. Um, when we can automate that and understand it, and understand it not just in a lagging way, meaning um, forecast and pipeline, but start looking at leading indicators, which are more activity-based, 
that we know have a probability for success uh, at certain dimensions. When we start looking at leading indicators in an automated fashion, that's really when you start unlocking the power of productivity. And we'll be exploring what that could potentially look like here. Um, one of the other things, and Jay's alluded to it quite a bit, uh, he, he speaks of transformational selling a lot. Uh, during times like this, when market dynamics are dictating that customers have to look for different ways to solve problems, you have to decide whether or not you're going to deploy a visionary sales approach that's not feature function focused, but rather focused on outcomes and where you can take a customer with uniquely differentiated features and functions. It sounds nuanced, but it's very different as to what conversations you're having, the partnerships you're shaping, and how you're guiding CXOs during these turbulent times. So a value-based, outcome-based sales model is um, what I think uh, a maximum velocity uh, generator and is something that we're going to look to fine-tune even more from where it is already today. Uh, one of the things that impressed me that Jay and team have built out is, is the strong team of former CXOs and strategic resources, practitioners available that we can leverage in campaigns, that we can leverage in painting a vision, painting a path for our customers to understand. Taking that and understanding how to scale it into uh, business outcome models that every rep, every systems engineer can use is a massive unlock to the quality and uh, level of conversations everybody across the org can have. So we're going to take a look at how to potentially build that out, same way as I've done it in the last, uh, last few engagements that I've had across multiple companies. Uh, the other thing that this does also is uh, there's so much FUD out there from competitors, and it's going to continue uh, due to the velocity we're having. It's, it's great to be the fastest kid on the block, but uh, everybody's coming after you. When you have a value-based, outcome-based sales approach, it's kind of hard to argue with, quantifiable results that you can take somebody to when your only focus is feature and function. And um, uh, one of the things that I've been a religious believer in is uh, not waiting for market to dictate velocity, but rather drive velocity to the market. What does that mean? I'm a fan of maniacal and continuous pipeline generation programs. What that means is we are going to have steady days where we drive pipeline. All we're doing, we're preparing for meetings, with customers, we're reaching out to customers. And what that also means is it, it has to be in a very focused way. Uh, it has to be in a way where we educate the channel as well to help us with that pipeline generation. That's SIs, uh, service providers, as well as DeVars. That focused approach in my past has produced great results because you can act as a partner to companies versus just chasing deals. So you're building a business plan on how to help your customers become better. So maniacal pipeline generation, focus on accounts that we cover, focus on enabling our partners to help us with that pipeline generation, enabling them, are going to be key programs. So uh, two last elements that I just want to mention that kind of wrap around everything that I just mentioned. Two key elements that have to be in play in order for everything that I just philosophically and conceptually mentioned to actually be maximized and realized are the following. Number one is we're going to continue to focus on recruiting only the best talent and with the highest expectations of that talent. Um, the quest for excellence is going to be our, our mantra, and what that means is when we're recruiting people, we're going to focus on intelligence, coachability, character, and experience, and the first three really being the most important. The reason being the market is evolving so dynamically 
that we need to have people who uh, enjoy being uncomfortable, enjoy learning, enjoy growing, and enjoy becoming really the best version of themselves because we're going to give them a platform to do it by executing on the second element. We're going to build a world-class enablement team uh, that's going to not just enable uh, the sales teams but also sales, pre-sales, sales leadership, the channels. And that means everybody will be in a consistent way, in a scalable way, uh, pursuing value creation for our customers and in return getting maximum yield for our efforts. So um, I think we, uh, it's known we've hired a new uh, vice president for enablement, Rick Kicker. So I'm going to be partnering very closely with him and building out uh, these models and these frameworks so we can take advantage of, of everything that I believe is in front of us. And um, the enablement portion is so critical because it actually uh, accelerates people's ability to execute, eliminates waste, um, increases transparency and complete accountability across the team because everybody's educated and everybody understands what their charter is. And quite frankly, when all comes together beautifully, as, as it did uh, for us at AppDynamics, um, that's when you hit escape velocity. And my goal is to help hit escape velocity through the $1 billion, uh, mark in ARR. So a little snapshot. I hope it gave you some insights into what's floating around in my mind. Um, I'm going to look to have this not just float around in my mind, but rather be uh, built into a program within, within probably 30 to 60 days. I want to spend a lot of time in those first uh, couple months sitting down with people, sitting down with customers, and analyzing data. So, Jay, that's, that's um, kind of who I am, what I'm about, and um, what I'm looking forward to. Excellent. Kali, thank you. Bill. Okay, so we'll take a couple questions here before we move on to our final section. Hi, Hamza Farawala from Morgan Stanley. Um, so one of, one of the, the key debates coming out of uh, the most recent earnings was um, the longer sales cycles um, that you noted. And um, it seemed like it wasn't entirely clear whether that was macro or comp competitive related at all. Um, so I know it's been, I think, maybe one or two weeks since, but um, can you share with us any you know, additional insight or color you might have on that from a go-to-market standpoint? Yeah. First of all, I'll clarify what we said. We said towards the end of the quarter, we saw some deals taking longer than expected, which really means a number of deals we're working on, they closed, but probably more than normal we expect uh, did not close. Okay. So I kind of looked at, we, we thought it wanted to kind of highlight it as being transparent. But that's the one data point. As I say, one dot is the data point, two is the line, and three is the trend. At this stage, it's a data point. Um, we, we aren't seeing a trend yet. So, but just wanted to highlight. So, Jay, yeah. if I may, if I may add to it as well. Yeah. If you, and again, this is why I said I had deja vu, just having some of the conversations within within Z. When you hit a certain scale and a certain velocity and you start adding more and more heads, it becomes critical to have a broad uh, uh, sales enablement model with templates and frameworks so that everybody can learn. Um, and it's not just best practices over here and less best practices over there, but it has to be consciously built out. 
And when that is built out consciously, then you'll see consistent effort as opposed to some of the lag in how long it takes to close deals in certain regions. So to me, when I looked at the information, again, outside looking in, a, a robust sales enablement program, right? This is not a couple people and a few trick ducks. This is a legitimate program uh, uh, and an offering that is going to continue to evolve. That is what will help eliminate some of those challenges, and I've seen it before across multiple organizations. Any other questions? Okay, next we'll go with the financial section with Remo Knesso, our CFO. Great. All right. Thank, thank you, Jay. Uh, thank thank you. you, Dolly. Uh, appreciate you being on the call. Um, so there's no change or update to our guidance that we gave. Uh, you know, the only comment is that uh, our free cash flow will have a negative impact of about 15 to $20 million for uh, semantic litigation expenses. Uh, we're moving uh, our headquarters, so there'll be a cost related to TIs for that, uh, as well as we'll have duplicate rent. So those expenses aren't picked up in our pro forma, but they'll be picked up in our cash flow. So we expect our cash flow to be 1% to 2% uh, lower than, or one to two points lower than our non-GAAP operating margins. Um, we've gone through this before. Um, you know, really strong, you know, and powerful, you know, financial model with Scaler. Um, you know, the comments I've made, I've never seen a model like this ever in my career uh, with the opportunity that we have. 50% uh, growth, mostly subscription, 81% gross margin, which talks about the strength of our platform. Uh, you know, the multidimensional go-to-market, which Jay just went through. Uh, net retention rate, 118%, which is outstanding, especially when you consider that more and more customers are going straight to transformation. Um, and also the infrastructure, our cloud, you know, uh, infrastructure that we have with the ability to increase our cloud and increase our capabilities is very unique with the type of traffic that we see, and again, at these types of margins. From an operating expense structure, a uh, very leveraged uh, operating expense structure, uh, over a third of our employees are in India. Uh, we have two locations, one in Chandigarh and one in uh, Bangalore. Um, our intention is to continue to build uh, that capability in India. A third of our employees are here in, are in San Jose, and a third the rest of the world. So very distributed you know, type operating structure, very leveraged. If you compare us to other companies, you know, the cost per employee, I'm sure it's one of the lowest, if not the lowest, you know, on the market. You know, as Jay mentioned, you know, the two, you know, pillars that we've had is ZIA and ZPA, you know, with the Zscaler B2B, as well as the uh, uh, ZDX, the uh, digital experience. You know, it's a big market opportunity. Even at $20 billion for ZIA and ZPA, a very large market opportunity. But when you add the other capabilities that we have, you know, along with CASB, you know, the market opportunity just starts getting really big. That was one of the you know, beauties for me are one of the things that really took me when I, when I talked to Jay, you know, for the first time, and I took a look at the platform that's been created, you know, coming both from a security and networking background, not a technical person, but with companies like NetScreen, which got sold to Juniper, uh, and also Infoblox. And I took a look at the platform which was created for tomorrow. That's what Zscaler built. When I take a look at le legacy companies who've built you know, appliances, it is awfully hard. So we've talked about retrofitting those appliances into a cloud. 
And that's what these companies are trying to do. They have no choice. Zscaler, clean slate, 10 years ago, built the platform to go forward. And as you can see, we have additional capabilities that we put on that platform. As we go forward, you'll see additional capabilities. <coughs> the, advantages, the advantages of Zscaler also is that uh, our engineering organization, which is absolutely outstanding, the speed that they develop these type of applications, when you're doing it on a purpose-built clean slate, is a lot faster than what you can do as an appliance company trying to cobble things together and hope that they work. So, you know, going back, uh, you know, related to how we sell uh, professional bundle, I won't go into this in detail, is uh, 1x, 1.5 for business and 3x. I think most of you have seen this. The uh, transformation bundle includes firewall, cloud sandbox. ZPA basically doubles that. And the new product platform, we expect to significantly increase that. Uh, secured uh, transformations gone from 35% last year at the time of public offering was above 20%. And this year, it's at 43%. So that's when companies decide to go local break breakout. That's when companies basically are going in, all in with Zscaler. That's what makes our product, you know, very, very sticky. Um, we are a large enterprise-driven company. Over 200 of the G2K in fiscal 17, over 300 in fiscal 18, and over 400, you know, currently in fiscal 19. What's impressive is the average ARR has gone up about 50%, you know, from fiscal 17. It's gone from $306,000 ARR per customer up to $467,000 per customer. Customers are buying more, you know, reflection of our ARR. With the additional capabilities we're putting on our platform, gives us the ability to increase that. I would expect that to continue to increase. Uh, if you take a look at the penetration of, tra of uh, transformation at 43%, We'd expect more companies to go full transformation. If you look at ZPA being 14% of our new and upsell business in fiscal 19, up from 10%, large opportunity for customers to buy the ZPA. Additional, you know, with our CASB capabilities, you know, in the future, as well as the uh, digital experience and B2B, those should increase, you know, our average ARR fairly substantially as we go forward. And, and provide those applications and capabilities to our customers. Revenue's gone up significantly every year, you know, 50%, you know, average over 50%, you know, on an annual basis and quarterly basis. Uh, again, we're a subscription model, which basically, you know, it's ratable, so it's a easy thing to basically predict. Annual billings up over 50% to $390 million. Comment we made, first half full year billings, we only have four years, but over the last five years, and this is also within the 43 to 44%. You know, Dolly coming on board, you know, we've, we've said that uh, expect 42 to 43% in billings in the first half and a little bit more, a little more than, usual, than normal in the back half. One of the things I've talked about also is that, uh, you know, coming to Zscaler, and I've mentioned this many times, I'm not concerned about our operating profitability or free cash flow. If you take a look at the state the company is in or the size the company is in, to have these type of results is outstanding. Our market, we have a huge market opportunity. We, when we gave guidance, we gave guidance lower operating profitability in fiscal 19 versus fiscal 18, primarily related to so that we can make the investments in the company to exploit this market. 
There is no company in the world with the platform that we have or the ability to capture this market like Zscaler. What it's going to come down to is our execution. One of the missing links that we had was Dolly. Dolly, you know, in working, talking to Dolly over the last few weeks, you know, I am excited having Dolly on board and the capabilities that he can bring and can continue to execute. Again, our execution in the past has been 50% growth year over year. Having Dolly on board, you know, I'm excited to see how things work out. Operating profitability, 8%. Uh, in fiscal 19, free cash flow, 10%. When Jay set up the companies I talked about, he did all the right things. Basically, you know, with the India operation, the, we take a look at the R&D people in India, R&D employees. I asked one of our key engineers, I said, how would you compare the India employees versus the U.S. employees? He said, one for one. That's the type of capability and strength we have in India. You're not going to hear that from many companies. The reason for that is because that's the way the company was founded from the very beginning, with a significant India influence, with, significant, with strong employees in India, you know, driving, you know, the culture and the success of the company. From a revenue perspective, pretty much 50-50, you know, right across the board. You don't see this very often, if ever at all. You know, most companies start out 80-20 U.S., 20% international. You know, you get to maybe 60, 40 over time, 55, 45. We're at 50, 50, you know, currently. From a long-range model perspective, uh, you can see, you know, for our guidance, you know, we didn't come out and say 80%, but that's pretty much we target internally. If we see in that 80% range, you know, we're, we're happy. Uh, Non-GAAP operating profitability, 3 to 5% down from the 8%. You can expect sales and marketing to be up a couple points. And again, we're an innovation company. You, see all, you saw all the products we were coming out with. So I would expect R&D to be up a couple points also. You know, G&A, you know, in the same range, maybe a little bit lower. As I mentioned, the uh, non-GAAP free cash flow, a couple points below the non-GAAP because of the things I've mentioned, semantic and the new building and the duplicate facilities. Long-range model, no change. So from the time we were public offering, when we went public, just to just remind people, I said we'd get to sustained operating profitability, positive free cash flow sometime in fiscal 20. We basically got there right out of the chute. I also indicated that we'd get to this model when we got to 800 to a billion dollars. The reason that we put out that guidance is because we wanted to give ourselves all the room in the world to exploit this market and make the investments that we want. So in fiscal 20, you know, with the development that we have in R&D, with Dolly coming on board, we're going to step on the gas. So um, with that, what I'd like to do is get the team up, and we can take questions you know, all together. Yeah, we could get the team up, but uh, maybe take a couple specific questions for Remo before we uh, open it up for the other execs as well. Okay, I'll take one here. Fatima Bulani from UBS, thank you for taking the questions. Arima, around the time of the IPO, um, you talked a lot about contribution margin, and I wanted to understand with the product portfolio having expanded, um, with your sales reps landing customers with both ZIA and ZPA at an increasing incidence, uh, I'm wondering if you can just refresh us on how those contribution margins have uh, trended over the last 18 months since the IPO, and as Dolly's thinking about sort of uh, um, accelerating the velocity of land and expand, uh, what sort of impact uh, 
should we expect um, that to have on, on contribution margins going forward? Yeah, good question. You know, I, I would really, things have really not changed with a contribution margin. The first year, basically, mm -hmm. you know, it's high expense related to landing customers. Then you look at years two and three, the contribution, mar sorry, contribution margins in the 60 plus percent range. You know, I really don't see that changing. Uh, you know, when Dolly gets on board, you know, we'll see how, how it all plays through. You know, but I, I wouldn't expect a whole lot of change with that. Dan? Yeah, uh, Dan from Wedbush. So my question is, with Global 2000 customers, ARR, right now turned in about half a million, is there any reason that shouldn't hit seven figures in the next few years, especially with Dolly on board? Thanks. Well, leading question. I can't uh, really go there. Um, I don't have a crystal ball. But, you know, <laughs> We are, a, we are a large enterprise-focused company. You know, I, I think that the, you know, the number one thing with, with Zscaler is basically our execution. I mean, we've got the, we got the platform, the delivery mechanism at high gross margins. Uh, we got the reliability, scalability. We got the infrastructure in place to grow the company. You know, we just need to execute. And I, I think that, um, you know, from my perspective, when I take a look at the landscape, you know, for the, you know, for, for companies, it's really complicated. And what Zscaler does, it basically simplifies it at a low cost. So I would hope that that will continue to see, you know, increases, and we should see increases in that global, global 2K. Alex Henderson over Needham. Um, so I was hoping we could go back to the the, the delays in the, the, the deals that were pushed out, uh, there seems to be several possible variables that you've highlighted, but one of the ones you didn't talk about a whole lot is the bias that you're having to much larger, much more complex deals, uh, which ultimately means there's more boxes to check, more process that has to happen within the customer that could easily just as, just as easily be an excuse for why that occurred. Can, can you talk about the size of the deals that were pushed out, were they biased to very large deals that inherently take longer and hence may have be a function of you just getting bigger and the deal sizes you're chasing? Yeah, that's a good question. So when I, when I take a look at uh, our deal sizes below $500,000 new ACV, our growth rate year over year was substantial. When you take a look at our growth rate over $500,000 you know, in new ACV, that's where we saw, you know, some slowing down of the deal sizes. Again, from my, my, from, from my perspective, as you get bigger, as Dolly said, you know, things change. But I also think that basically, you know, putting a sales enablement process in place, knowing when to go after deals, when to pull out, uh, selling value, and I think that's what we're going to do going forward. You know, I would expect things to be, you know, I, I would expect things to be you know, strong for us. Hi, sir. Tasko Jolgi from Guggenheim. We were just talking about your durations uh, ranging from one year to three years for your, for, your for your deals. Can you talk about the trend in that duration over the last couple of years? If you look at the blended duration across all the deals, how has that trended since IPO, even before IPO to now? Has it gone up a lot, or has it remained pretty much the same? I would say it's been pretty close to the same. I mean, we, we made a push before I got at the company that we'd push three-year deals. So, and it, since I've been here, when you take a look at three-year three -year deals, 
you know, over a four-quarter period, it really hasn't changed. It's been about 70% of our new business have been three-year deals. On a renewal basis, they're lower. You know, and again, once a customer goes annual and you're trying to get into three-year, it's a little bit more difficult. But for new new business since I've been at Zscaler, pretty consistent, you know, right around three years. 70% it's been three years. So the blended duration would be around two years if you look at the new deals? Uh, higher. 70% three it's, years? It's higher. Yeah. It's, it's, it's higher. higher. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I would say it's about 2.5 years. For new, for new deals? For new deals. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to get all the execs up and uh, have them available for any questions that you might have saved since the beginning of the analyst day. We're going to stand. Okay. Thank you for taking my question. This is Yifu Lee with Oppenheimer. Um, I think Dali talked about uh, earlier that um, usually corporations go from smaller customers to larger customers, and obviously Zscaler did the other way around, the harder route going to target larger customers. And going to Hansa's earlier question about, you know, the, the sales cycle was a little bit longer for some of the larger deals. Are there any plans to go be more focused on the SMB customers so as to uh, lessen the volatility on the larger elephant deals? Right, I'll answer that question. As I said during <coughs> my section, we started from the top. We are going down. As Remo indicated actually, <coughs> in some recent quarters, our growth actually in that enterprise space has been fast higher the growth rate than on the high end. So we are making inroads in there. Uh, going all the way down to SMB fundamentally changes the lead general of the stuff. Look at typically in the enterprise, there's a one mix of sales and marketing. In the low end, it's a different mix of sales and marketing. We, we have an inside sales team that kind of generates a small part of a business. It's an opportunity for us. But I think it's an incremental opportunity. Obviously, when Dali comes on board, we're going to take a look at it to see where all we expand. But to me, it seems like naturally going down the, the triangle uh, is, a, is a natural approach for us. Just to add to that, uh, I spoke about it just briefly. I, I'm a big fan of multidimensional go-to-market models. And then I'm locking which, which of the different tiers is going to be covered, either direct or with what type of partners, because even you can parse the channel community into uh, tactical bars, which you know, will engage with anybody, and more strategic bars that do transformation for their customers. So identifying the multidimensional model, the elements of it, um, and what velocity you know, accelerants are is absolutely going to be something we look at. It's, it's, I'll tell you, the last two, two and a half years, it's what's helped um, AppDynamics explode its business. Uh, by taking advantage of everything without diluting uh, productivity per head across the, the cohorts in each category. So we will be looking at it because the velocity and the opportunity is there, but we're not going to do it at the expense of uh, top-line productivity trade. Good. Hi, everybody. It's uh, Michael Turich from Raymond James. Thanks very much for the, having us to the user conference and for the day. Um, so, so Ahmed, you laid out the, this framework for uh, position, how you're positioned in, you know, implicitly relative to next-gen firewall vendors. 
uh, born in the cloud, service edge, that's just all expected, especially in ZTNA. If, if you use, use that frame, same framework, how would you position yourselves against the, um, the CDNs who are um, doing more in security and certainly were actually born before the cloud? Um, and uh, do certainly do edge, and, and uh, Akamai in particular is already doing something that you could call ZTNA. Right. So if you look at the Zscaler platform and what we have built, it is three things that have come together, right? One is this high-performance architecture that allows us to inspect without slowing down traffic. That's engineering. The second is physics, right? We have built these data centers across 150 locations where compute is present right there. So there's an engineering challenge that we have solved. There's a physics challenge that I talked about where we are not rerouting traffic and hairpinning and tromboning and incurring latency. And the third aspect, which was implicit, is the domain expertise, the security domain expertise, right? All of these three things come together to deliver what we call the Zscaler service. Now, if you look at CDNs, CDNs, like Akamai, they are very good at building data center footprint, right? They, do, they, do they have some of the high-performance engineering? Yes. Do they have all the security domain expertise? No. Also, when you look at CDNs, they are front-ending servers. So they are fanning a single server, like a Wells Fargo.com or a Bank of America. They're sitting in front-end and, and sending content out so that multiple users can access it. Zscaler service fundamentally sitting in front of users. We allow a user to go to any destination, right? So while there may be a few areas uh, on those three pillars that I talked about where, yes, the edge footprint might be there, but it's the coming together of all of those three things. And fundamentally, the service, you have to look at one as front-ending servers and the other as front-ending users from a, uh, from a policy-based connectivity perspective one user to every possible destination that you can go to, where a CDN serves, you know, one application fanning out to multiple different users. Yeah, if I may add a couple of comments to that. Uh, it's important to understand user-facing versus server-facing that Amit said. Otherwise, security starts looking confusing. Right? Take United.com, United Airlines. All traffic, all United employees go through Zscaler for their protection. But United.com website is not protected by us. It's probably redirecting when you type united.com. It's probably get redirected to Akamai or somebody for two things. One is caching, and second is probably DDoS protection kind of stuff. So their core competency is sitting in front of servers. And actually CDN is the biggest core competency. In the DDoS of the stuff, it was natural for them to add because they're sitting in front of servers. Though it's, it's a new acquisition for them. Us sitting in line taking all traffic from all over the world is very different and very complementary than what they've done. Now, your second question, is everyone trying to move into a different space? Yes. From SASE point of view, what Gartner said, I mean, CDN vendors don't really play in that game. From the second party is the ZTNA. Being able to access applications uh, with zero trust Everyone's trying to figure out. We got a much bigger lead over others. Yes, some of the CDN vendors have tried to either buy technology or do something out there. But if you look at the core space versus where vendors are trying to get to, 
We think we, we are actually in the midst of that core space, core competency, while others are trying to come from a different stretch. I, I, I can add on just one more piece. Don't discount the combination of Zscaler mm -hmm. Internet access with the Zero Trust Zscaler private access together. Companies, to do that well, you have to deploy an agent. That's a, that's a very hard proposition than a CDN saying, I'm going to do Zero Trust access for websites, and that's it. The combination of the two are very powerful. Hi. I don't know if this mic works. Turning on the mic. Hello? Hello? Number six. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Um, Brad Zelnick again, Credit Suisse. Remo, if we take a look at your guidance and appreciate all the, the color commentary you've given us around it and the increased investment this year, just given the massive opportunity. But specific to Dolly coming on board and the playbook that he's going to run, can you give us a sense of how much is, is represented by the things that he needs to invest in in terms of sales enablement, et cetera? And he hasn't even arrived yet. Is there any chance that you didn't properly account for everything that he's going to need once he gets here and assesses what it takes to run his, run his plays and implement his program? Good question. Um, I can't, I'm not going to, I'll talk around it, but make some specific comments to it. Um, our growth rate in RSMs last year was about 40%. Uh, our growth rate that we're planning for internally for this year is 60%. So also, you know, related to sales enablement and things that, uh, you know, Dolly's going to bring, you know, we, we put some things aside for that also. So we we went into this planning period um you know, basically knowing that uh, we had an opportunity to really capture this market. Um, we knew that, you know, Dolly was close coming on board, um, and basically we wanted to make sure that we gave him the runway and the resources basically to, uh, you know, to do the things he needs to do. In addition, you know, one of the things I want to talk about, which is separate, is that the 42 43%, you know, that is to give, you know, Dolly the runway, let's say, B, you know, as Bill mentioned, the new products, you know, don't expect any revenue this year. We're not planning for any revenue for the new products. Uh, the obsolete acquisition is going to increase expenses 7 to $9 million. I think we made that comment a couple calls ago. So we're looking at this year as a year of investment. I, like I said, I am not concerned at all about our offering profitability or free cash flow. Zero. I'm, I am concerned making sure we make the proper investments to really exploit this market and take the FUD out of this market so that our customers can realize the benefits of Zscaler, which is really the next generation networking security company, and I think the best one in the world. Thanks, Remo. And is Dolly still on? Do we, can I ask him a question? Of course. Awesome. Yeah, I'm still on. Thanks, Dolly. Dolly, can you maybe just share with us any prior examples from your career where upon arriving somewhere in a situation such as this, the amount of time that you think it takes just to appraise what the state of the state is and the, you know, what the work is that's cut out ahead of you? Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to comment on time just because it would be speculation at this point, but why don't I give you some conceptual uh, uh, viewpoints and then hopefully it gives you the data you're looking for. If you look at App Dynamics, my last spot, it was really uh, a single-digit, you know, seven-figure to, uh, to 
quite the large growth ratio, so we built it and we built it in layers. So it's a little bit different than here, but the concept of building things in layers still applies. And um, doing it in a, in a very systematic way is not disruptive, and doing it in a way where, you know, it's accompanied by templates and enablement allows people to learn, right? Um, if you look at my prior experience at BMC, for example, where, you know, I witnessed and participated in and learned from uh, what it meant to really take a, a business that was sleepy and uh, completely turn it uh, around within six months, same thing with, you know, the right sales culture, with the right talent, uh, with the right enablement framework, with the right metrics being uh, measured and impacted and coached to. Um, that was a, a major overhaul project that was completed within six to nine months. And then you look at, you know, Z to um, uh, Remo's point, uh, you can't d disregard the growth that this engine is already producing. So clearly there's some great elements in place already, right? So, so the goal really is going to be to take 30 to 60 days to evaluate all data, build models where none exist, and evaluate talent, hire top talent, and speak to as many people as possible and speak to as many customers as possible to get a complete picture, right, all the while making incremental progress. I'm not a fan of standing still, and I'm a fan of iterative uh, progress and sometimes even pulling back if it wasn't the right step and doing it quickly. So I can't speak to the time, but I can speak to the sense of urgency, and I can speak to the fact that there are already great elements in place, so we're not having to build from scratch or redo or undo things. And that obviously is, is always a positive. I, I, I did dig into this, and kind of to – I'm going to answer a prior question a little bit too. One of the points that I did discuss in great detail with both Remo and Jay uh, was the types of investments that would be required in order for us not just to scale this for now, but to build a scalable engine so that we never talk about worrying about scale uh, again and what that would take this year and in the years out. And I can say with complete alignment, uh, all of us left the beating on what's required and what we're committed to, what we think is going to be the winning formula. So I don't see any surprises, and I see uh, a solid plan being laid out, which is part of the reason why I'm obviously very excited. Cool, thanks. Great, thank you. Uh, Andy Nowinski with Piper Jaffray. So I, I just want to start with a clarification. Uh, so. Palo Alto says they now have over 100 onboarding locations, uh, which substantially improved their performance. Are the onboarding locations they're referring to the equivalent uh, to what you call the front doors, where there's no compute capabilities and therefore their performance uh, didn't actually improve? Hey, Amit, before you answer the question, so they said 100 onboarding locations and how many data centers did they say? Well, they didn't say data centers. I think they That's, That tells you something. Right? So okay. you can look up uh, Google Cloud GCP. GCP, when I last looked up, reports 20 compute centers, right? So 20 regions, and on an average about 6.7 front doors or onboarding locations for each of them. As I described in my presentation, if you are Google and Microsoft, you're building these giant football field-sized data centers, it makes sense to aggregate them in, in certain locations. It's wonderful if that's your ultimate destination, but if you're trying to run an edge service where you need to come in, get inspected and go out, it just, it's a, it's a physics limitation, right? 
So, yeah, the short answer to your question is yes, it's onboarding location, think of it as just as a router, it accepts traffic and then over a private circuit, it ships that to one of the compute regions, that's where you can physically run a virtual firewall and then you come back and then go to where you have to. If the whole world was located inside Google, perhaps that would work, but that's not the case. Uh, a user needs to go to many, many different destinations. And fundamentally what Zscaler has done is in every 150 of those POPs, our compute is sitting right there. On top of that, we do app neutral and carrier neutral peering with not just one provider. We peer with Google, we peer with Microsoft, we peer with Akamai, we peer with Apple. So a user gets to the compute as soon as possible, the entire security stack, all their policies show up, and then a millisecond or two hop away is the front door of whatever service or destination that they go to. And we have invested heavily in carrier neutral colo facilities where the bulk of the internet is pulsing through. So we're right there. And that's, that's really what you need to do to deliver this high performance service where you get all your security without any user experience compromise. So that's FUD when you hear, you know, front door equals compute. That's absolutely not the case. Okay, and then I, I just want to go back to an example you provided on, on downloading a file that only took you 22 seconds with uh, SSL scanning enabled. Right. I guess in the debate of proxies versus firewalls, you pointed to SSL decryption as one of the key differentiators. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe you're both using commodity hardware chips to do that. So why is your performance so much better, and why can't the firewall vendors achieve that same performance level with uh, SSL decryption? So, and, uh, great hardware. question, right? Uh, I touched upon this in the, in the presentation, but let's, let me reiterate. First things first, to do SSL inspection, you need to have a lot of compute resources, right? That's, that's a fact. Now, if you try to run a virtual firewall in AWS or GCP, none of these infrastructure vendors give you hardware accelerators on their platform to begin with, right? So you so have to... Specialized, specialized hardware, right? right? For example, uh, we run all our infrastructure on bare metal. These are Intel servers. We use Cavium Nitrox cards to do SSL acceleration. That's one bit of it. On top of that, over the last 10 years, we have refined our TCP IP stack, our SSL drivers to squeeze every ounce of performance. Because we started as a proxy architecture, we had no choice. We assume that the world is going to be 100% encrypted. As a proxy, you have to intercept. You have to look at content. So that's what we designed for. Firewalls were designed as a layer 3 de device looking at source, source IPs, destination IPs, throwing a, throwing a bunch of DPI to detect app IDs and things of that nature. But at the end of the day, if you have to do any meaningful DLP or any meaningful security these days, you have to decrypt you have to look at content, and then you need to fire all those engines. And uh, the reason why uh, you saw the uh, NSS Labs report, all of these firewalls, when they bolt on a proxy, they suffer an order of magnitude performance degradation, right? Because the drivers are not tuned, and when you move that over to a virtual uh, setup like AWS and Azure, you don't even have hardware accelerators that you could derive some extra performance from. So those are all undisputed facts, right? And people will, uh, pe people will try to muddy the water saying, yes, yes, this all works, but those are undisputed facts. But the other comment I could make is, 
there are architectures you design for. You don't change architecture overnight. You can add a feature or function to it. Designing your inspection check device for proxy architecture or a pass-through are fundamental decisions. Once you make the decision, you unless you go and rewrite your stuff, you can't change it. That's where this thing is happening. If, if I could add one more, one more emphasis on the fact that to Jay's architectural comments, we're multi-tenant from the beginning. There is not a marriage of a customer to a VM in our architecture. So that gives us crazy economies of scale that only true multi-tenancy will do, meaning we have a pool of resource available to do SSL. SSL is expensive no matter what at the end of the day. That pool is shared among all of our customers, not a VM that we deployed that was still a single tenant VM in a particular you know, compute region for that one customer. We have scale across all customers sharing a common pool. That gives us a crazy advantage. Another way to look at it is from an infrastructure load perspective, for Zscaler, there isn't any difference between one organization with 100,000 users or 10 different organizations with 10,000 users each. If you had a single tenant architecture, you remember the Netflix uh, DVD example I gave, you will have to spin up 10x more virtualized infrastructure because they were single tenant to begin with, right? You do not get to use that pool of capacity that is available. Um, and that pool of capacity is limited given the fact that AWS and GCP do not give you uh, that bare metal performance that you need for SSL interception. Hi. Hi, it's uh, Howard from Jeffers. I, I have a follow-up on uh, Palo Alto Networks. So in the last couple of weeks, there's been some noise in the market uh, following Palo Alto Networks analyst state in which they, they mentioned some competitive wins, including a, a top 50 customer from Zscaler. So could you... Do you dispute that commentary? And, uh, if, you know, could you provide some additional color? Thank you. Yeah. I thought I was pretty explicit in my earnings call. Did you listen to it? <laughs> did you? I, I, I did read the transcript afterwards. Okay. So what more clarity do you want? This is what I said. I said, I personally know every customer where there were a million users. Okay. Do you think that customer go get displaced and we don't know about it? We haven't seen any change in that. The second comment was they displaced the Fortune 50 retail. We know I personally and my team, every Fortune 500 customer that Zscaler has, they're all happy in working with us. I don't know where the numbers came from. It's silly. That's all I can say. Really, I appreciate you hitting the point home. Hi, I was uh, Alex Henderson Needham again. I wanted to ask a question about the data lake that you described uh, building. Um, clearly, the architecture that you've described is an edge architecture um, with edge compute, but a data lake generally is a, a centralized architecture. How do you put those two together, and you know how are you, you know, designing that lake? Uh, can you talk a little bit about whether you're going to do a, you know, a, a CrowdStrike-like threat graph, or what are you doing with that information, and how do we think about that, uh, right. uh, that, that performance? It hasn't really been uh, fleshed out at all. Right. So, designing a proper logging uh, architecture was a day zero design consideration for Zscaler. What we did when we started building this platform was to separate the control plane 
which is where policies reside, from the enforcement plane, which is the high-speed inspection, from the data analytics and storage plane, right? And some of our fundamental patterns uh, around Nanolog are around the ability to live stream logs from any one of these uh, data inspection points to log aggregation clusters. And the reason we don't do one for one is because it helps with things like GDPR. Maybe I'm a European customer and I want to ensure that I get the best performance for all my users anywhere in the world, but I want my logs to be written and stored in Geneva, right? And we have the ability to live stream that. This is one of the strengths of the platform. Any user log on any 150 of our data centers will show up within a second or two on the administrative console because of the fundamental architecture that we have built for logging. And once you look at the volume, 70 billion transactions a day, each log line itself is about two to three kilobytes of data, right? It's a staggering amount of information. So a lot of the uh, engineering that we did around was how do we compress that, you know, 50 to one uh, and, and still be able to provide live streaming analytics. And uh, the reporting capabilities of the platform is one of our strengths. Now contrast that to what happens when you do a hybrid architecture. In a hybrid architecture, here's, how, here's the reality, and you should go and ask all the appliance vendors. Here's my firewall. That firewall is dumping logs locally on that box. There is some cron job somewhere that is trying to pull these logs from different sources, trying to put it together into a data lake. If you have portion of this are, uh, of, uh, of your service in sitting in AWS or GCP, well, that logging might be different from what is happening here. The amount of storage there dictates how many days of logs you can do. Think of it from a privacy perspective. I'm a Fortune 100 company. Now I have my logs sprayed across hundreds of these boxes. If, if a user comes and says, I have the right to forget, eliminate my logs from everywhere, there is no way you can guarantee that. The Zscaler architecture was designed so that the data enforcement plane never writes anything to disk anywhere. Everything is sitting in RAM. And then we use these high-speed streaming services to send the logs to the designated log cluster. And so if you, if you are the CIO and you say, for my Fortune 100 account, I want my logs written to a disk underneath my desk, we can guarantee it by design. And it won't be written anywhere else in the world, right? So those are some fundamental uh, engineering problems that we have solved. And the reason why you see us launch ZDX and Zscaler B2B is that core platform is providing all of those services then we can just easily re-leverage. When we talked about ZDX this morning, what is the biggest challenge for other, uh, uh, you know, other troubleshooting vendors? If I have 100,000 end users, how do I log everything from every one of those devices every five minutes? It's a staggering logging problem, right? We've already solved it. We're doing that for every transaction. And so for us to add that incremental telemetry data is something very, very simple and trivial. So that's that's the power of the platform that we will continue to re-leverage as we launch uh, newer and newer initiatives. If I could ask the second piece of that. So in regards to the CDNs, they all get some benefit from uh, sitting inside of service providers in terms of improving the performance of the service provider. They get free bandwidth or you know, free location uh, you know, uh, reduction in cost. Uh, can you talk about your positioning against that uh, functionality? Uh, are you also seeing 
uh, as one of those edge providers that in fact improves the performance enough for the service provider or partner enough with the service provider to give you that value that you get that reduction in cost associated with those relationships. Right. So I can add a comment. Yeah. As the first thing I'd mentioned, I think this question was similar to CDNs versus Zscaler, right? Uh, again, fundamentally look at that problem in those three buckets. There's an engineering problem. We've talked quite a bit about what it means for high-speed inspection, what it means for logging, all of that stuff, right? There's a physics problem, which is your compute needs to be right next to the users and destinations. You've solved that. The third aspect that I want to double-click on is the, the domain expertise. We're running a security platform. Our security platform is getting 120, 130,000 unique threat indicators every day, right? How do you ingest that? We get feeds from 40 different security vendors. You know, we get feeds from VirusTotal, from, from uh, you know, Google Safe Browsing. We get from, uh, we are part of Microsoft Maps program. All of these things are coming in real time. How do you ingest all of that information? How do you update, you know, every minute so you don't disrupt uh, the, this, the, the, the user experience, right? So all of that is a lot of security domain expertise and engineering coming together. Uh, while CDS, yes, they have some edge footprint, right? And they have, uh, they have front-ended servers. I think to deliver a Zscaler service, all those three things have to come together. Yeah. High-speed engineering, your, your edge architecture, and a lot of the security domain expertise that we have refined over the last 10-plus years to be able to do that in line. I mean, there's a second part of the question. I think what you said is sitting there, the bandwidth benefits you're getting. Uh, that, you know, a few years ago, internet peering at exchanges was not very common, right? And in fact, three, four years ago, every service provider was talking to Microsoft and said, hey, I'll sell you special exchange, you come to me, and I'll take you to Office 365 service now and wherever pretty quickly. They're very excited about it. What has happened in the past three, four years is, Internet exchanges, there are something called internet exchange, as the word exchange means, for very nominal fee, any provider of content can become participant in it. So a typical exchange in Chicago or New York may have 300, 400 providers there. So who are these guys? Either they are bandwidth providers, like service, or actually the majority of them are content providers. Google, Salesforce, Apple, Zisk, all these people are there. So once you get there, for a nominal fee, you're part of the exchange. Now you're one hop away. So the advantage of being sitting next to the telco exactly hasn't become good. In fact, we debated, should Zscaler data center be sitting with AT&T, Verizon, or BT? The answer came back in their data center. The answer was no, because we needed carrier-neutral data centers. Equinox or Talicity or Global Crossing because in those places generally all carriers try to come. So because of peering, when your volume is large, we actually get a lot of benefit of bandwidth savings, right. um, which is a good thing. So we are taking full advantage of it. We are extremely well peered, right. and that's a big plus. So you can, for example, if you go to peeringdb.com, right, you can see Zscaler listed. Our AS numbers are listed in various internet exchanges we are, because we are a true cloud service. You should do the same checks for some of the appliance vendors and see if they are present there. Uh, and the answer would be no, right? So 
uh, in some of the ex internet exchanges, we are right up there with some of the biggest uh, cloud service providers. You'd see Verizon, Netflix, Zscaler, you know, in the same uh, kind of screen uh, on the PeeringDB website. So that's a very important point, being carrier neutral, being app neutral, being able to connect a user on the fastest path uh, with the application they care about is, is the, the most important criteria for us. Okay, so I want to thank the team. I'd like to thank the analysts and investors uh, who have made themselves available with your investment of time to learn more about Zscaler. Um, hopefully we gave you a lot to think about what the next uh, world looks like for cloud and mobile. Uh, we'll be here to take additional questions in the room, but I will conclude our program here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.